Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. I'd like to start off by, again, thanking all of you that attended and participate in the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver 2023, including our sponsor speakers, presenting companies, and in-person attendees. With this being our first event in Vancouver, the turnout was absolutely incredible, and we're truly thankful to each of you that took the time to join us in person or watch any of the keynotes or company presentations online. We will be back to Vancouver in 2024, but next up, Vegas. Save the date, Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas at the Paris Hotel and Casino on April 30th through May 2nd, 2024. See you in Vegas. Speaking of Vancouver and all the keynotes, I wanted to, for this episode, I wanted to wrap a bow on Vancouver. Uh, We've now posted all the content from the conference on the Planet Microcap YouTube channel. And so I compiled all the investor keynotes into one extra long audio episode for you to consume. And each individual keynote is on our YouTube channel. Quick note on the audio, this was all recorded live at the event with live Q&A, so please excuse any time lapses in between questions during the Q&A portion, and please keep that in mind also for quality purposes. Each speaker provided incredible insights, and the order for each segment goes, uh, first up is Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries, second is Dave Barr from Pender Fund, third, Howard Leishman from Canaccord Genuity. Then it's a fireside Q&A with Hamed Shabazi. Fifth is Brent Todd from Catacord Genuity. And then closing us out is Ryan Irvin from Keystone Financial. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy. I'd like to introduce our first keynote of the day. Uh, Small Cap Discoveries is the lead sponsor for the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver. And we've uh, you've probably heard a number of our podcasts over the years and just... I'm very thankful to call uh, Paul and Trevor from Small Cap Discoveries, good friends, uh, high quality folks in this space. So uh, without further ado, Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries. Thank you, everyone. Uh, yes, my name is Paul Andriola. Uh, a little bit about me before we get on. Um, I am a microcap investor. I live and breathe this stuff. Um, I'm also a director of a couple of companies. Uh, I'll mention those a little bit later on and uh, fully disclose which ones. Um, like I said, I, we, we live and breathe this stuff. And um, we think there's a set of criteria that, um, that if you follow 
will help you um, sort of discover companies that, that could literally change your financial future. Um, so Small Cap Discoveries itself is a platform to help our members, uh, you know, find those companies. And, uh, you know, it's a newsletter forum. We do company interviews and uh, a lot of educational resources in there. So my goal today really is to inspire you guys to kind of do the right things and help you find those kind of companies that we think could, uh, like I said, change your financial future. And using the criteria that I'm going to explain a little bit later um, has allowed me to actually have found some companies that have changed my financial future. So, um, you know, what we're going to talk about here is multi-baggers. Um, I've been fortunate enough that I've actually discovered a couple companies that have gone on to uh, generate over 100 times return and value. And of course, that category is where we're playing right now, the microcap space. Strategy I've used has really been inspired by a number of books. Uh, these are three that made a big difference to my life, uh, How to Make Money in Stocks. If you haven't read that, I highly, highly recommend this book. Um, it really determined or changed the way I was thinking. If anything, it sort of flipped upside down the way I, I thought about uh, microcap investing. Uh, what works on Wall Street? Why this book is really important? Uh, anybody who's in the microcap space should have, you know, has to read this book. Um, it will solidify and validate why spending time in the microcap space is going to make a difference. Um, basically, what they did there is they took a look at over about 100 years worth of uh, data and uh, really proved that operating in the microcap space with a specific kind of criteria will help you find those kind of companies that will change your life. And of course, 100 Baggers, uh, Chris Mayer, um, again, will, will help you define what it's necessary to find those companies. And historically, it's gone back and looked at a bunch of companies that have returned 100 times in value. Uh, okay, to be successful, obviously, you, you have to know where to look. And the person that turns over the most rocks wins the game. Of course, that's Peter Lynch. And... To do that, you need a repeatable system that helps you go through the thousands and thousands of companies that are out there to find the ones that make the most sense and give you that the best chance of success. Part of what we're doing here today, obviously, all the companies we're going to meet, uh, management teams are going to see, should be you know part of that process. Okay, so the odds you're facing right now, just in Canada, there's roughly you know just over 2,700 companies that are publicly listed. Um, sub 500 million, you've got just under 2,300. Now, as of last quarter, 313 of those companies actually showed a profit. So you've only, you know, less than 14% of the companies that, you know, in, in the Canadian micro cap ecosystem is profitable. You need to flip over a lot of rocks. That chart there is the VSC index or the, I call it the VSC index, the TSX venture exchange. And you can see over the course of the last 20 or so years, it's not exactly been an easy place to, to find winners. Okay, so what do you need? You need a repeatable search system. You need definable criteria and you need tools. And by this, I mean either screening software, what Trevor and I do with Small Cap Discoveries is we actually go through every CDR filing in Canada manually. Um, of course, once you find companies, you have to have a monitoring criteria. And then lastly, you need time and patience. You need to let these stocks do their magic. 
And of course, buy and hold does not mean buy and forget about it. If you find a company, you're going to have to spend time monitoring it, making sure it continues to, to fit your criteria. Okay. So the key criteria that we use to find companies that will return those kind of numbers that I talked about, you have to find a company that's got hyper growth, right? Um, we don't, we don't necessarily look in the value bin. We're looking for companies that are growing rapidly. And by hyper growth, we mean 25% growth or more per share. Um, low price to growth per share. So those that know peg ratio, we use the peg ratio to really determine if something's overpriced or underpriced its growth. We look for companies that produce high returns on invested capital. And, and we really try to understand, especially these profitable companies with cash, what are they going to do with that cash? How can they reinvest that cash at a high rate of return? And then last and probably the most important of what we do, we try to understand the discovery process. Our, our, our program is called Small Cap Discovery specifically because what we believe happens in a stock that goes from unknown to known. And the fact that we're dealing with the small size companies is even more important because that's really going to determine kind of how mispriced it is and where the potential uh, price could go to. Okay, so when I say hyper growth, like I said, 25% growth from revenue per share or greater. We want to see growth in earnings per share of at least 25%. And these are early stage um, sort of inflection points. So we want to see at least two quarters of profitability. If you use just those three criteria, we think you've shrunk that original sort of 2,300 companies probably down to 10 or 20 per year. Low valuation, we're looking for a peg ratio of less than one. Um, we want to see low enterprise value to cash earnings. Of course, earnings can be a little bit iffy if it's not really cash-based earnings. So we want to make sure that, the, that these earnings are being converted over into cash. And of course, we really need to understand the financials. So really what's happening sort of under the hood. As I mentioned, return on invested capital, we want to see a company's ability to reinvest that capital at a high rate of growth. Um, the, the, the best compounders that we found have found a way to reinvest that capital and, that, and generate you know, further growth. Once you have that, you've got a company that really has the ability to accelerate its, its ability to grow. Okay, so early stage of discovery. This is what we look for when we're looking at these, these nano caps, these small, small micro caps. We want to see no or low analyst coverage. Um, we, we actually then search out uh, the bulletin boards and social media. We want to see low social media discussion. Um, you know, think Twitter, think Seeking Alpha, all those things. It's actually a good thing when nobody's talking about a stock. Uh, we want to see low or no institutional ownership. And of course, no or low promotion. Um, you know, we don't mind all these things coming together after we own it, but before we own it, this is pretty key to, to find companies that are mispriced, right? So small size usually does another thing. It keeps some of the bigger players out, right? The, the big money tends to have to wait until it gets bigger and bigger, uh, which is pretty obvious. Um, and then the small companies that are unknown have the greatest potential for margin expansion. So when you get these companies that turn into hundred baggers, you need two things to really work for you. You need that revenue and earnings growth, and you need that margin expansion. That comes from that discovery process that I talked about. Um, and, and retail investors really don't understand that this is the biggest advantage they have in the market, that this ability to, to basically buy before the institutional and bigger players buy. And it's, it's amazing how rarely they use that advantage. 
Okay, so this is an example. This is one of many, many stocks have, that we've invested in the past, and it, it sort of categorizes the different stages of discovery that we talk about. So um, for those that, that may know this company, it's called Bioscience. It's, it's been a successful uh, microcap. It's still listed, um, generating a lot of cash, um, uh, but we're, we're not shareholders of this at this time. But if you go back to early, sort of late 2011, um, this, this company had sort of toiled in obscurity for a long, long time, even though its financials were actually looking pretty good. Um, that point there where it says discovery catalyst, um, that was just one earning statement that I guess really triggered the market. And we saw a big spike in, in share price at the time. It's hard to see a big spike, but trust me, the stock went up above 50% in one day. And um, it was enough for us to, to understand that, that people were starting to really figure out that this company existed and what they were up to. So we call, you know, up until that point, we call the pre-discovery process or uh, um, sort of portion. That second portion, the catalyst. So that catalyst now kicked in and more and more investors are slowly starting to, to find this company. Typically though, it's the smart investors that are looking, right? So no, nobody's going out there and, and talking about it. No, there's no promotion in this company whatsoever. There's nobody out there actually, um, you know, highlighting what's, what's happening here. Slowly, sort of the, the, the retail audience picks it up and we go into that third phase and we start to see this retail catalyst and, and more and more people are talking about it. And sure enough, the stock starts to move and starts to move quite aggressively. But what gets interesting is then um, you get institutional discovery. And that's when the institutions can finally actually start to buy the stock. And it's typically the smaller institutions and then it grows into the larger institutions and you get a really strong move in share price. Now, this is where the stock goes from eight to 10 times earnings to start trading at 20, 25 times earnings. Institutional investors now are, are getting to know the company. An analysts might start to cover it. Um, you know, it might be on BNN, it might be on CNBC. It starts getting talked more and more in the institutional circles. And you, you, you see the stock go from when, when we first found it eight times earnings, eventually it hit 50 times earnings within about two and a half years. Business growth was, you know, still the same. All the financials were metrics were the same, but that discovery process moved that stock up to about a 50 times earnings uh, valuation. And then you get what we call post-discovery. Pretty well, everybody in the industry is now understands the company, knows it, um, and you tend to see uh, sort of a, a lightening up of valuation. And sometimes now, because it's priced for perfection, any sort of misstep has a pretty impactful, uh, uh, you know, impact on share price. Okay, and then just a few of the other things that we look for along with the financials and, and the, the four criteria we mentioned there. When we're looking at these companies, we wanna see insider ownership of at least 10%. Um, that gives the, you know, the shareholders and the management team sort of similar vested interest. Um, you know, we, we tend to get a little, I wouldn't say worried, but once it starts getting over 40% insider ownership, you get a little bit more concern that uh, that might be a little too tight. Uh, smaller share count is better. Uh, we want to see management teams that treat their shares like gold and not toilet paper. Um, you want to see companies that are really um, emphasizing, you know, their, their capital markets and, and their share count. Um, what we've recognized over the years is if, if, a, if a management team treats their shares well, it typically means they're treating their other resources well as well. So that's staff, cash, you know, um, pretty well everything else that you need to run a business. So, it's a, it's a real key thing for us is to, to see how they've managed their share count. We love simple businesses. The simpler, the better. 
a simple story is easy to tell, right? Complicated stories may get some people excited, but a simple story is easy to, to sort of replicate and tell. And then the last thing we do is we really try to understand that shareholder base. Um, think, think of the example, if, if Bill Gates were a shareholder in a small microcap company, how different that, uh, that message is than a whole bunch of retail investors that, that really have no, no um, sort of experience in technology. Okay, so a little chart porn here. <laughs> um, these are past examples of companies that sort of fit the criteria I just mentioned before. And in some cases, some of the companies we've actually owned. Okay, MTY Food Group. Um, I'm sure a few of you know this company. Back in 2003, this, this is a company that um, they, they put together those small um, sort of restaurants, fast food restaurants in malls. That, that's, um, you know, Chinese restaurants and, and sort of specialty food restaurants. Uh, profitable back in 2003, the stock was trading at 30 cents. You know, fast forward 20 years later, um, you would have made 220 times your money had you bought that stock back then. Profitable, boring business, uh, low tech, easy story to tell. All the criteria we mentioned in the past fit the position here. Boyd Group. Um, here's a company that does something uh, just as boring, uh, auto body shops. Um, 2006, low of 84 cents, profitable back then, very low mar uh, multiple. Um, you would have made 290 times your money had you held that stock. My favorite, uh, Expel Technologies. Um, I bought this stock at 17 cents back in 2013. So in 10 years, the stocks returned 486 times that purchase price. Um, all these companies were not covered by analysts at the time, um, growing very rapidly, profitable, and um, you know met all those criteria we were talking about. So the, these are the kind of results you can get by following that kind of criteria. Now they don't all work, but you just need a few of these to, to cover any losses you've got in some of your other stocks. Okay, so current examples. These are a couple of companies that we're following right now that meet that criteria and um, you know are, are not you know 10 or 20 years old. By the way, these are not buy recommendations, sell recommendations. These are just examples I wanna give you. So Ibex Technologies, uh, back in 2016, we highlighted this. Uh, this is a company that met all that criteria that I mentioned. Um, they're, they're a manufacturer, especially products for life science, uh, the life science industry. We highlighted at 11 cents, this company was trading at about six or seven times earnings, I believe at the time. Um, had you bought at that time and held it to date, you're up 973%. It's a very recent one. We do own shares in this company, Cannabis Capital. Um, by the way, this, this is the first cannabis stock that I've touched in the last 10 years of all the hype and everything else. This is the first one that we saw that turned profitable. We jumped on this just in January um, at 11 cents. The stock's at 27 and a half cents. Very profitable. Met, meets all the criteria that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we're up 150% on that stock to date. DRX, ADF Group, um, very boring business. They make steel structures. Um, 
this company was one that uh, we, we put out two lists every year. One's called the GPs with a chance and the other is uh, a takeover candidate list. This made our takeover candidate list. It was trading below breakup value, but it was growing uh, and met all the criteria that we mentioned. Um, had you bought it at the time, you had to wait a few months, but we're now up 104% on that. Uh, I personally have no position in that stock. Okay, Total Telecom, another example. This company has been sort of toiling obscurity for a long time. Um, we highlighted it uh, recently at 16 cents. Uh, just a couple of days ago, a stock hit 50 cents. We're up 213% on this one. Now, I own shares, and I like this company so much that I joined the board to help them basically get more discovered. Total Telecom. Another example of a company I joined for the same reasons is a company called Atlas Engineered Products. Um, all these businesses are quite boring. Uh, this, this is a company that actually makes prefabricated components for, for the wood frame construction industry. Um, 2017, we highlighted at 25 cents. Um, just recently hit $1.20. Uh, you're up 376% on this company. Okay, so just, just to summarize, I, I, my goal here really was to sort of give you guys uh, a sense that this, this is not a, um, there's a lot of pessimism in the market right now. Um, there's phenomenal opportunities in the space. The Canadian market has um, delivered some amazing returns if you know how and where to look. Um, so the, the concentration should be on smaller, fast-growing, profitable companies. They've been proven to outperform. Read what works on Wall Street and you'll see what I mean. Um, you, to be successful here, you have to have a repeatable system to search for these types of stocks. You have to have a proven criteria set, which we believe we do. Um, you have to understand that discovery process that I talked about. Um, I think the more time you spend really understanding that, the more successful you'll be uh, in this microcap space. Of course, you need time and patience. I, you know, I, the, the three stocks that I showed you back that, that returned you know, 200 plus, um, every single one of them had at least two or three uh, times in their life where they saw a 50% drop in share price. You have to understand what you own. You have to have time and patience to be able to let this thing work out. And of course, buy and hold does not mean buy and forget about it. You have to constantly monitor and make sure the company continues to meet the criteria you're looking for. So that's kind of it. If anybody is interested in our process, um, you know, we're prepared to give you guys a three months sort of free trial just to test it out. There's no obligation whatsoever, just to understand what we're doing. Um, just use the, the code word planet microcap. You can ask me any questions. I can set you up and we can help you out. Trevor, really no obligation. Just want you guys to understand what we're doing. And that's it. That's how you can contact me. Um, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, I'm around here. I'm going to be here for the next two days. If you have any questions about our process or what we do or anything Canadian microcap wise, uh, I'm here to answer any kind of questions. Yes. What, sorry, what do I think of BlackBerry? Um, it, it doesn't even, it hasn't shown up on our list. So one of the things that we do when we're looking for companies is we don't, we don't sort of attack a company and try to analyze it. We look for all the companies that meet our criteria. So what Trevor and I do is we actually go through seed our filings every day. And if a company doesn't meet our criteria, we don't even look at it. So whether it's BlackBerry or any other company, especially the bigger ones, we know that they're not going to meet a lot of our criteria. So we tend to spend very little time on those. 
Yeah, we're trying to find companies that nobody's ever heard of, right? I think everybody in here has heard of BlackBerry, so we we tend to shy away from those type of companies. Yeah. 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 Uh, this is probably goes against what uh, a good financial advisor. So the question was, um, how do I manage uh, portfolio weightings, especially if a, a stock you know takes off and, and hopefully goes up a lot. Um, it's like I, I'm not afraid to concentrate a position. Um, my biggest mistakes in the past have always been I've sold stocks, you know, good stocks too soon. Um, I've actually now, uh, the way we work is if we find a company that's actually performing and, and continues to the criteria, we add to our positions. Like typically we'll add to our winners and we'll, we'll cut our losers as fast as we can. So, um, like I said, I go against what a, a good financial advisor would tell you to balance the portfolio. We don't do that. We we stick with our winners as long as we can, and you know we we cut the weeds and we we water the flowers, right? Is there any other questions? So actually, our biggest trigger usually we try to hold between five and ten stocks. Our biggest trigger tends to be that we find something else that that allows us to sort of to replace it, right? So we, we use the hockey analogy. We want our best, best five players on the ice at all the time. So now if a, if a company drops its criteria, like it, all of a sudden, if it's not growing, it's not meeting our criteria, then that's the reason to sell it as well. And, and sometimes that, that means, you know, it's gone from 25 times earnings to 60 and it, we can't justify that valuation. So we'll sell it there as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll start, I mean, we, we start sometimes some small positions. So, I mean, it's not unusual that we, yeah, we'll get up to 15, maybe 20, but those, those sort of last five or 10 are, are typically starter positions. Yeah. And we never, we never buy the whole position day one, right? We, we tend to buy a starter position and then we will wait for execution, more comfort, and then we'll start adding as that happens. Um, but we never ever buy our whole position day one. Yeah. You're welcome. Yes. You have a newsletter? Yes, we have a newsletter. Yes, thank you. Uh, um, uh, a big part of what we do, we we send something out every week. Um, when we when we find something that's uh, interesting, obviously we we put a report together and send it out. Um, but what we do, the probably the, the the thing that our members are most excited about is these lists we put together. So, like I said, cheapest with a chance. We put that out at least two times a year. What what we do there is we literally go through every CDR filing in Canada and try to find 10 companies that, that meet that, that criteria and also are extremely cheap. So that's where we usually find our big winners is we've done that, that sort of uh, research and uh, you know, find the 10 best that fit that criteria. And um, usually surprisingly there, there may be names that never, we've never heard of before. So it's, it's nice to go through there. And, and one of the reasons we don't use software, right? a lot of people ask, we'll just use software you know, to screen for these. Um, you want to find the ones that fall between the cracks, right? You want to find the ones that that's that the odd, you know, odd doesn't uh, doesn't get picked up by the, that software, because that's the one that's most undiscovered. And I go back to Expel. That's actually how I found it. Most software screeners weren't picking it up. <laughs> okay, uh, there's not enough time here today for me to vent and complain about CDR. Yeah. No, we haven't found that 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 backdoor wormhole or whatever it is. Yeah, um, we uh, now it, it's kind of a blessing too because it's so bad 
in our mind that is preventing a lot of people from from doing the work we do. Yeah. So it's it sort of lessens the competition. Well, we've started. Trevor sent a letter, and we'll see what that does. You know, we'll we'll go and picket the their office here pretty soon. All right, I'm being told to wrap it up. So, um, listen, I want to thank everybody today. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy the show. This is a fantastic opportunity to go and discover new ideas. So I'm I'm busy today and tomorrow. But if anybody has any questions, anybody wants to see, um, you know, ask me anything, uh, or if there's any way I can help, please let me know. All right, thank you so much. I'd like to introduce our next keynote pre presentation here at the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver. Uh, we've done a number of podcasts over the years and uh, always, always love to hear his insights and what he has to say regarding the markets, especially our small microcap universe here. So next up, we got Dave Barr from Pender Fund. Dave, take it away. Thanks, Bobby. Um, and Thank you for hosting this great event. Um, I know there's a lot of investors and CEOs of microcap companies here today, and nobody usually cares about these companies. There's it's not a lot of interest out there, so it's it's nice to get all of us in one room together and uh, share our best ideas. So thanks, uh, Bobby, for bringing the show up to to Vancouver um, today. I'm going to kind of have some high level overviews of my approach to microcap investing. Um, and then just walk through some really interesting data points that I think tells us we're all hunting in the right uh, in the right uh, field. So at Pender, who are we? Uh, we're just a bunch of. And Sharon always gets mad at me when I say this. I got to remember this is recorded. Um, but we're like the island of misfit toys from that Rudolph claymation Christmas special. Um, we all look at the world a little bit differently. We always we have our idiosyncratic ways of trying to identify which businesses we really want to be invested in the long term. And at the end of the day, we just we get up every day. We love figuring out the unit economics of businesses and how long they're going to grow for. Um, because at the end of the day, we love making money on these companies. The with our funds, you know, it's it's so important to be aligned. So we invest uh, alongside all our clients in our funds. Um, we love microcap because it's such an inefficient part of the market. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we try to be nimble and opportunistic, like being flexible enough to, to move in parts of the market that a lot of others can't. And I think, you know, I've, I've said this on the podcast with Bobby. If, if you're an individual investor running your personal account, you actually have a huge advantage over a lot of professionals out there because you can, you can buy these micro caps that are fairly illiquid for a, you know, a billion dollar fund manager. Um, and then when the stock, goes through the moon because every now and again, microcap stocks just uh, go parabolic. You can actually sell your position. Um, the billion dollar fund manager has to wait for the company to get sold or for the company to get to, you know, a 10 or $20 billion market cap. So what are we looking for? We're looking for hunter baggers. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this actually possible? And there's a great book published in the early seventies. It's now come to a bit more popular today. And Chris Mayer wrote a uh, an update to this, but it's called 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. It was written by Thomas Phelps. And he looked at all stocks between 1932 and 1971. And there's over 365 stocks. He identified over that period that returned 100 times your investment. So there's 365 opportunities to make 100 times your money in that time frame. Um, and the great news is there was one every year. Like every year you could have found one of these companies that was going to go up over a hundred times. And when we look at the world today, you know, markets are way more efficient today, apparently. Um, is it possible? 
And yes, it is. I mean, you look at a company like Constellation Software. Uh, we don't own Constellation Software, but it's up 167 times from its IPO price. Um, that, that'd be okay. Um, another company, Blackline Safety. We do own, own this in our portfolios. Um, it's up about 20 times from where it, to where it initially IPO'd. So there's a lot of opportunities here. Um, you know, Constellation clearly has uh, gone up over 100x. There's a lot of companies that are still early in that compounding process that we can identify today. What do you need to get these types of returns? Uh, just two things. You need the business value to continually increase and you need the multiple to expand. It's pretty simple. I mean, I just, I love math. If earnings increases 25 times over however many years and the multiple goes up four times, you got your 100x. Um, and, but how do you, where, where do you look for these types of opportunities? And, you know, you have to look for companies, you know, where, where are the multiples compressing and where are the unit economics strong and, and probably misidentified. So looking for smaller companies is clearly a good place to be because you don't have, you know, the all Harvard MBAs and the Bain guys and all those guys down in Wall Street combing through all the financials and doing a hundred customer calls. Um, that you're that you're actually competing against. You, finding companies smaller where you actually understand the product or the service, where you can find if it's actually differentiated. And then when you're looking at smaller companies, you can find companies that are really early in the compounding process. I mean, I know a lot of the companies that are presented here uh, today and are going to present. You know, a lot of these companies are very they're, they're in the very early innings of you know really long runways where they're going to be able to. You know, they're probably 5% market saturation today. Um, so there's 95%, 95 times growth potential here in the next, uh, in the next 10 or 20 years for these companies. Um, one thing we always look for is, uh, a proven long-term focused management team. And, you know, this is, this is a pretty tricky, uh, part of small cap investing as most investors here can probably attest to. Um, you want the management team really focusing on the long-term and it, it can be really challenging because if you have a good quarter, your stock goes up and people like their stocks going up because then their stock options are worth more. Um, but at the end of the day, you really want to find that alignment and that long-term thinking um, where the, the founders, the CEOs and the management teams are really trying to drive value, not next quarter, but where the company is going to be five and 10 years from today. You know, when we, when we read the book, 101 in the stock market, um, there was, there was two general areas of companies that actually returned 100 to 1. Um, one's restructurings. And if you look at kind of the market today with the, the move we've had in interest rates, the increase in bankruptcies, um, I think what we're probably going to see is a lot of restructuring opportunities. And so if you look at some of these, you know, uh, in kind of over time, companies that had over-levered balance sheets, and then had to re, you know, basically recapitalize the business by converting the debt to equity. Um, it's pretty cool. You can buy debt at 10 cents on the dollar, and then you can equitize it at 100 cents on the dollar at a depressed multiple, and then you own a whole bunch of a really good company that's now debt-free and um, now you know, spitting out a, free, a ton of free cash flow and a going concern. Um, the other area you find a lot of these opportunities is in the microcap space. So just companies that were totally unfollowed, um, 10, 20, 30, $50 million market cap businesses. When you kind of look at general market dynamics and where can you find these businesses, things that are too hard 
Um, micro cap companies that are really compli complicated. Um, it's hard for people to get their heads around. So they're just going to move on to something easier to do. Um, I hate to say it, but people are lazy. Um, looking for general market downturns. So, you know, when, when everybody's selling, you know, that's usually a good time to get invested. Uh, I remember March 2020, um, everybody here was like backing up the truck, right? Okay. Neither were we. Um, but it was a, like, when, if what, your portfolio from March 2020 over the next 12 months, I, mean, I think we were up over 100% over that period of time. And so just being able to deploy capital in those periods of time is, is, a, is a huge advantage in finding these types of companies. And then more specifically, we do see industry downturns. Uh, specifically, what we're, where, where we operate, we do a lot of small cap, micro cap tech. Uh, people just hate that right now. So if you're looking for an industry downturn right now, microcap tech is a great place to be. I apologize to the CEOs who probably don't feel it's a great place to be. Um, but as an investor, you're, there's an opportunity to get these companies at very attractive valuations today. What do you need to do be as an investor now? Um, you need to be a contrarian. I like this poor stormtrooper here. The, you have to have a long-term outlook. So you need to be able to kind of navigate through the noise because when you're a contrarian, um, companies are going to release good results and then the stock's going to go down and it's going to, you're going to start questioning yourself. Um, so you, but you have to have that long-term outlook while being a contrarian so you can navigate and hold through the noise. The, the next part is, you know, it's, it's, you need to get the multiple expansion contraction correct, but you need to get the economics of the business. And one thing that is crucial is if the earnings of the company are increasing, continue to hold. Um, if, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the data that came out 100, 101 in the stock market just really reinforced that the companies, as long as the earnings were continuing to increase, it was a really good idea to, to hold the stock because what ends up happening is a lot of these companies start looking expensive and you think you've got a better idea and you're going to sell it. And I still am upset at myself for selling Constellation software at $80. Nobody look at the stock chart today. Um, but at the same time, you can't just hold your position blindly. You always have to test your thesis. Understand what the key business drivers are, why you think this company is going to continue to create economic value, and then try and figure out why they're not doing that anymore. Um, so it's very much like the scientific method where you're always testing your thesis, trying to prove yourself wrong. Uh, our small cap investment process, um, you know, it's driven by our background. We started in the venture world in, uh, I started in 2000. Pender started in the venture world in 2003. And it's really driven by understanding the quality of the business, uh, getting more value than we're paying for, um, being flexible and watching for the downside. And how this has evolved, it's into our private equity approach to public markets. So this is understanding, you know, do the deep work on the business, but have a value-based strategy. You, you got to pay the right price when you actually enter these. And that really uh, speaks to buying companies when multiples have contracted. So first part, what is a private equity approach? Well, the first part is your scuttlebutt research and due diligence. Um, a lot of people might recognize this individual. Uh, he wrote a great book called Common, Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. Um, named Phil Fisher. And highly recommend this book to anybody who is, you know, looking to invest in small cap companies. And it was really interesting because I was, you know, running, running, a, working for a venture fund. And I started looking at public companies and uh, it was, 
was a fascinating time in the mid 2000s where all these tech companies had gone public in 99, 2000, um, not dissimilar to 2020 or 2020, 2021. And then they all got totally stranded. Um, nobody cared about these companies. Um, a couple of people in this room I can see who, you know, we we're looking at the same stranded companies, Brent. And, but it was, what was, what was really interesting is like, I started looking at these companies and doing work on them and digging in. And I was like, wow, like these are great businesses. About the same time I read Fisher's book and it was, what was fascinating was he was doing this, like he was basically a venture capital operating in the public markets. Like he had it run, ran a 10 stock portfolio. He was doing customer calls. He was trying to talk to everybody he could at the company. He was showing up at their the company's front door, trying to interview management teams. Um, so really taking that analytical approach, but applying it in the public markets. Um, the second part of private equity is you work with the company to help them realize value. You want the company to grow. Um, you know, multiple expansion is great, but it's a, it's, you know, it's a, a one-hit drug. You really need the business economics to, to drive the long-term returns for you. And you know, as investors, we, we like to engage with management teams. We like to talk to boards and directors, um, offer insight into how you know, we, we think things can be done a little bit better. Um, I mean, we're probably talking 2% increments. We can't claim to know more about a business than the CEO, but sometimes we can, uh, we can help out a little bit. Uh, the third aspect is, uh, you know, in the private world, uh, you know, when you make an investment in a company, you generally get liquid by selling your comp- the, the company outright at the end of the day. And, you know, what we've seen in the public markets, particularly in Canada, a lot of these small cap companies are by are bought by bigger companies, um, either private equity or strategics. And understanding who the buyers of a company are are potentially before you get invested, um, and understanding industry dynamics. You know, there's certain industries where there's a lot of M and A activity. You've got a couple very you know big PE sponsors who are aggressively funding roll ups. Uh, you've probably got a much higher probability of getting uh, ta- liquid or taken out in your small cap company um, in situations like that. Of course, it's not always a great thing. Uh, you know, the usually companies like to buy other like to buy great companies. They don't like to buy bad companies, so they usually don't bail you out of your mistakes. But they do short circuit the compounding process in your winners. And example for us, a company we we bought last summer was uh, Magnet Forensics, and got, uh, you know, bought it really opportunistically in the summertime at about $18. And then, you know, through the fall, it started running up. And then uh, private equity firm agrees to buy them at, I think it was $43, about eight months later. And like, that was great. It was like, oh, you know, bought it at 18, company's getting taken out at 43. We, you should be happy, right? And the reality was no. Like, Magnet Forensics was growing at over 40%. Growth rate was accelerating. Like it was probably the best software company in Canada. Um, and now it's a public company or private company and we can't own it anymore. Uh, value-based strategy, again, just focusing on the price you pay. It does matter. But I do want to share some interesting data points. So um, George Baker, uh, great quote on uh, buying and holding compounders. To make money in stocks, you must have the vision to see them, the courage to buy them, and then the patience to hold them. And all three of those skills are very different. And you need to have all three to experience um, hunter baggers in your in your personal portfolios. 
this is uh, a great study done by, I think it was uh, Blackstar Funds, and they analyzed 9,000 stocks that went through the Russell 3000. So basically the entire investable U.S. universe, I think it was from the early 80s to about 2027 or 2007, 2008. Um, but what this shows is, you know, the top 25% of performing stocks drove all the returns in the market. The bottom 75% um, was, was a collective zero. So you really want to focus on the top performing stocks uh, in the indices in order to generate stronger returns. And this is just the data showing a, a different way. Um, I, like to, I, I like this graph because, you know, what it shows is, you know, about 40% of stocks you would lose money on or 20% go to zero. Um, so this is the same study showing a little differently. But here, 20 percent of stocks you're going to lose all your money on. Like that, that's pretty scary. Forty percent you will lose money on. Um, if you look at the far right of this chart, this is the twenty percent of stocks that return greater than three hundred percent on average. And so this is really where you want to be hunting for to identify those great long-term returns. Um, conversely, on your risk mitigation side, you want to avoid the stuff on the left. And you know, there's there's a lot of common themes on that side. It's you know, overlevered balance sheets. Um, exploration companies, zero revenue, um, you know, 100 million of uh, negative uh, retained earnings, um, lots of indicators you can see to, uh, to avoid those types of companies. Um, next data point uh, is looking at the S&P 500 and the curse of size. And if you look at the, like the, the, the largest 10, 10 stocks in the S&P 500, between 72 and 2016, $1 became $66. Uh, sorry, if you look at all of them, on the S&P 500, um, $1 became $66. At the same time, the, the, the largest companies, your $1 became $5. So, you know, maybe it's different this time with Apple and Google and Microsoft. Um, those are usually pretty dangerous words in finance. Uh, but if you focus outside the largest companies, it's generally where you're going to find a higher probability of outsized returns. And then everybody loves a good Ben Graham quote, um, but I want to talk about one of his dirty little secrets. And he actually, you know, he talks a lot. If you read The Intelligent Investor, it's like, this, you know, buying everything at a discount to book value and then selling, and it's a really high transaction portfolio. Uh, but he made one decision that basically dwarfed every single little decision he ever made. And this is in the postscript uh, in the 1972 edition of The Intelligent Investor. Um, where, ironically enough, the aggregate of profits accruing from Geico far exceeded the sum of all others realized through 20 years of all their operations of investing. Um, so they did all this work and all this other stuff, and they bought Geico. And here's what it looked like. So, you know, Geico was $1 invested, became $600 from 48 to 72. Um, S&P 500, Graham Newman Partnership, S&P 500 over the same time as Geico, um, returns were, were were very meager compared to Geico. So um, Ben Graham, the father of value investing, uh, everyone, you know, as soon as they graduate from finance class, decides they're going to be a Ben Graham investor and um, just just go find one stock. Sorry, that's not career advice. I guess I'll put that disclaimer out there. Um, what's interesting is if you look at what he did, like where did Ben Graham stay consistent with his approach to Geico and where did he break his own rules? Well, he stayed consistent by focusing on value. He bought it when it was cheap. And he also bought a small cap stock. Those were two things that uh, Graham was uh, a big proponent of. Where he, where he broke 
broke his own rules was he made a concentrated bet. Um, he put a lot of capital into this one investment. And then on the other side, he was extremely patient. He didn't exercise his own cell discipline. So again, going back to kind of the three characteristics or the, the, the Baker quote where it's like, you got to be a contrarian. So you got to buy things when they're cheap and people don't like them, but then you have to be, you have to be, uh, you have to be concentrated and you have to be patient. And then, you know, I love this quote because it just puts things in perspective. J. Paul Getty's, his formula for success, rise early, work hard, strike oil. Um, this is all probabilistic. Luck is a wonderful thing. Thank you, everybody. And any questions? Yeah. So when we look at, uh, when we look at an investment, we categorize it into one of two camps. Uh, it's either a compounder. So it has the ability to, you know, go for a long period of time or it's a close the discount situation. You know, the reality is we, we love having compounders in the por our portfolio. It's hard to find 30. Um, there's just, are you going to find 30 stocks at a reasonable price that you want to hold on to for 20 years? Probably not. But so our sell discipline on compounders is our, our target weightings are between two and 5%. Um, if it gets to fair value, we will take our position sizing down. The only time we will look to actively sell a compounder now is when it exceeds our blue sky scenario. So when we run our, we, we run a bunch of different scenarios. Um, generally it's a bull case, a base case and a bear case. In the case of a compounder, we'll have a blue sky scenario where it's like, we, you know, we sit around, we have a beer, we say, if everything goes right, like how high could this actually go? That, and if the stock actually gets there, that's when we sell. Um, that's my, our highly technical approach, but that's, that's how we come up with our, our final sell discipline for a compounder. Cause the reality is it's, it's, it's hard to buy them back. Um, so if you sell out completely, um, it's hard to go. On the close the discount story, this is where, you know, we'd see the unit economics of the business growing, you know, single digits, you know, you're not going to get a 15% just from the business. And in those situations, that's where when it gets to our bull case scenario, we'll look to uh, exit the company completely. I think, you know, if we kind of go back to this chart here, kind of in the middle, this is the close the discount situations. And those are, those are good businesses and you can make money if you buy them really cheap and then you sell them. You tend to round trip on those if you hold them too long. So you need to be nimble and, and move around on those. Um, whereas on the far right, these are the compounders. These are the truly great businesses where um, we try not to sell those unless things get goofy. And some things did get goofy in February 2021. So what we would say is, who is, who is the goofy last buyer who's going to pay the highest possible price for this company at a point in time where they're hitting on all cylinders? So, you know, you know, like NVIDIA right now, like how much would somebody pay to buy that company outright today? Because um, that's a company that's everything's going incredibly well right now. Um, who is who is the least sophisticated buyer who's going to pay the highest price for that? That would be our blue sky scenario on NVIDIA today. You, you have to understand them. There's, you have to understand market dynamics and pro-cyclical behavior. So yes, gut feel. Like it's, you know, when, when things start going really well, people always get up, like they get overly optimistic, they pay too much. Um, but what does that end state look like? Um, and that's, there's definitely some gut feel there. And it's different for every company. Like you've got a software company that's got 90% free cash or gross margins, 40% um, free cash flow margins growing at 40%. You know, someone's going to pay way more than that for that than they are um, an industrial company that needs to make widgets and carry inventory and it's just way less capital efficient. 
Yeah. So question is about pessimism in the microcap space. And I think we've, we've seen two trends over the past 10 to 20 years that have really hollowed out the traditional microcap and small cap investment community. I, I got a note from uh, an, an, uh, a client of ours and he's like, you're one of the last people standing for Canadian fund managers that doesn't do resources. Um, like there's, there's none of us left. And it's like, well, where, where is the capital gone? So if you think about the institutional space, um, a lot, you know, uh, Dave Swenson at Yale, um, you know, populated, popularized the, the Yale model. And, you know, if you look at the Yale endowment now, it's about 40% invested in private equity. And so what a lot of the large institutional investors have done is they've taken their risk bucket um, where they're looking for risk and they've moved it from small cap into private equity because you can generate 18% low vol returns forever. It's a wonderful thing in a declining interest rate environment. So we've lost that in, we've lost that institutional following in small cap. Um, similarly, I mean, in, in Canada, the structure of the industry has changed dramatically. Like individual investors, um, there's a lot of move towards ETFs and passive investing. Um, and we've, you know, like, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, you should, I mean, the last five years, you should have bought a NASDAQ 100 ETF and not paid any fees. And I mean, so you should do that for the next five years too, right? Like it's, so that trend, that trend continues as well as the structure of the investment industry in Canada. The, you know, like a lot of the wealth has moved towards the large, uh, the large banks in Canada and the, the the advisor books are just getting so big that they can't actually come down and do small cap investing on their own. So um, it, there's just there's been a hollowing out of the small cap investment community. How does that change? I mean, picking inflection points is uh, you know it's very rewarding when you do it, and um, but the probability of success is low. And you know, my you know what I think is probably going to happen is we are going to see at some point in the next 24 months, uh, a reversal where small caps are outperforming large caps. And then once you get a one year of returns of outperformance of uh, small caps, to large caps, that's when people are going to start saying, well, Oh, Hey, my neighbor just made all this money. They sold their S and P 500 ETF and they bought a small cap fund and they're doing well. So I think that's, you know, it's that pro-cyclical behavior on the other side um, that I think we're probably really close to seeing. Um, I mean, if you if you look at the markets today, small caps are trading at like the valuations today are akin to March 2020, uh, March 2009, and early 2002, 2003. Um, and I think this is really, you know, for periods of time, this really maps well with the early 2000s because you have had this like massive rally and a whole bunch of mega cap stocks, which drove the market big sell-off and then small caps emerged out of it. So like, I just, I get really excited about what our five and 10 year number is going to be five and 10 years from now. And the next speaker is great. And for full disclosure, Dave Barr is not a shareholder of NVIDIA. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join me. Uh, my name's Harold Leishman. I'm a senior investment advisor at CG Wealth Management uh, based here in Vancouver. Uh, my topic today is uh, liquidity volatility in the Canadian venture capital markets. Um, uh, very briefly, uh, I'm a partner with LLC Private Wealth. We have three uh, pillars to our business. One is a wealth management platform. Uh, the other is a venture capital platform, which I manage. 
Uh, and the third is a service platform uh, that uh, helps family offices and high net worth individuals and active market participants um, uh, deal in the venture capital markets. Uh, a bit of shameless self-promotion, but it also ties into the topic at hand. Our, uh, our wealth management uh, platform, the 10-year track record is 15% annualized returns, and they've achieved that by capturing 100% of the upside volatility and only 50% of the downside market volatility. Uh, and I'll explain why I think this is important. Um, obviously, if you can skip out on the downside volatility, uh, it shortens your recovery period. Uh, you don't have to make as much money on the upside to get back to even. Uh, if you're down 10%, um, you have to make more than 10% to get back to square. Uh, it also prevents emotional decision making uh, at the at the bottom of the market. There was another interesting stat. You know, the uh, the MSCI between 2000 and 2015 uh, generated, uh, I think it was 12% annual returns. And the banks used to always love to say, if you missed the 10 best weeks, um, you know, you would do really poorly. In this case, you'd have a negative return. If you missed the 10 worst weeks, you actually would have generated, I think, about a 16% annual return. So there's more benefit in missing the downside than trying to capture all the upside. Um, and I think that's true for venture capital investing as well. Um, what is liquidity volatility? Uh, simply, as everybody knows, liquidity is the ease with which you can buy or sell assets without affecting the price. And liquidity volatility is just the rate at which that changes or how much that changes. Uh, declining liquidity uh, means we'll have uh, a harder time in buying or selling and growing liquidity means there's more investors in the space, uh, making it easier to um, uh, to transact. Our view is that market peaks uh, uh, often coincide with peaks in liquidity. Uh, so as a as a baseline example, uh, this is a, a chart of the S&P 500 uh, monthly dollar turnover. Uh, the far left is 2001. That that first peak is 2008. Uh, you know, actually it's 2007. Um, 2008 probably represents the largest financial calamity um, of our of our lifetime, of my lifetime, uh, certainly of our generation. Uh, as everybody's aware, I think you know the value of the S&P went down 48%. Um, the liquidity uh, decreased by about 66% um, in fairly short order. Uh, now, this is different than price action. The, the S&P 500 actually rallied fairly quickly after that, um, after all the selling had flushed through the system. But again, there was very limited liquidity going uh, going through the system. Uh, what's interesting is it did bottom in about 2012 and um, went on what is arguably one of the greatest bull runs ever of the stock market. Not the greatest, but one of the greatest. Um, and, and liquidity increased by 430% over a nine-year period. So I'd just like you to keep those sort of two numbers in mind. On the downside was 66% decline in liquidity. The upside was 430% over, over nine years. Um, the point is macro matters. And here's a quote from a strategist in the midst of 2008. You know, you can come into the office and spend a lot of time researching companies, 
trying to understand them like we're all going to do here uh, at Planet Microcap. You put together your portfolio of best ideas, and, and if you get the macro wrong or don't see the macro coming, it doesn't really matter what you've done. Uh, in this case, he was referring to the fact that Congress failed to pass um, uh, a bailout package initially for uh, the financial institutions, and that's when the market truly went into freefall. Uh, so this chart requires some explanation. Um, this is uh, Canadian venture market monthly dollar turnover. Uh, so what we've done is we've taken the TSX Venture Exchange and the CSE and added their combined liquidity together. That's represented in the black line. Um, the blue uh, shaded part in the background, there's a pointer here, but I don't think it actually works. It's about halfway through is uh, a sample of the combined index of the CSE and the TSX Venture, just to give you a feel for um, what that indicator is telling you. Um, pre the blue line, the CSC was really insignificant in terms of its weighting. It was less than 1% of uh, monthly dollar turnover. Um, the, uh, the shaded lines at the bottom have no real significance other than it's just a bit of definition. Uh, each bar represents about $800 million a month in, in turnover. Um, and uh, so the first two green bars represent $1.6 billion, so on and so forth. The top of the uh, the red line is is four billion a month in in monthly turnover. Um, at the far left, um, well, actually, before that, we'll we'll get on and we're going to look at uh, what these declines represented uh, and how long it took for them to recover. So, I've outlined peaks and troughs as best I can. You can certainly quibble and, and maybe put in more highs and lows. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, um, the information uh, is about the same. Uh, so uh, in 2008, uh, average volume was around 3.8, sorry, 3.9 billion a month pre the uh, pre the crisis. Uh, five months later, uh, the dollar value liquidity had decreased by 87 percent. Remember, the S&P 500 was down 66% and represented a 48% decline in value. Uh, so in this instance, an 87% decline. Um, two years later, there was a big commodity boom, or over two years, there was a big commodity boom as uh, uh, liquidity was pumped into the system. And dollar value liquidity is up over 1,000% in 27 months. Again, the S&P 500 was up 480% over nine years in a great, in a great bull run. Um, another subsequent collapse of 92% down to 461 million. I mean, I can go through all the numbers, but you can see them. And there's a couple of points to be made here, I think. Um, uh, timing does matter and understanding where you are in that macro cycle for micro, micro caps really does matter. Uh, average down cycles are significantly longer than up cycles, uh, a little over two years. Um, the average down cycle uh, in the same time frame uh, that the S&P 500 had that one huge blow up in 08 uh, onto the big run, we had five equivalent declines in liquidity. Um, or every two years, you have another 2008 or worse. So it's worth understanding what volatility means to you as an investor 
and um, and how you approach that. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love microcaps. Most of my money is tied up in microcaps, but you have to understand the risk and the volatility. Um, Upside periods are reasonably short, a little, a little over a year. I am going to back it up. There is, there is one item which, um, you know, scares me the most. Um, and that is that, uh, that first decline of, sorry, that second decline, uh, of down 92%, uh, was over 59 months. So I just go back. That's five years. So when you're investing, you have to think longer term and can these investments be successful? Um, because that is almost a worst case, uh, worst case scenario. We're about two years in right now, um, into the current decline. Um, it's certainly as large on a percentage basis in terms of no liquidity in the market. Um, what turns around is anybody's guess. Um, you just never know whether it's a mining market, an energy market, the next crypto AI, whatever it, uh, whatever it might be. Um, so in, uh, you know, in conclusion, it's a very short presentation. Um, I think when you're investing in these microcaps, we look at these things as a semi-private equity model. Um, you're buying small businesses, which really could be owned on a private equity basis. They have a limited liquidity um, and they can go for long stretches with very little liquidity and certainly not have any ability to raise money or access capital markets. So we like to look at these things with a three-year time frame. What can this business do over that time frame? Uh, do the companies have the ability to self-fund growth or to be able to self-fund uh, catalysts for future growth? Um, certainly growth is uh, ideal, but even if they can build that optionality into the business um, on a go-forward basis, is is ideal um, and never forget about the macro it's critical to know where you are in the liquidity cycle if you buy your portfolio at one of those peaks it doesn't really matter what you've bought you know likely you're going to be significantly underwater for a for a good period of time um, and that that um, that's my short and sweet uh, presentation Are there any questions? Do you have any uh, stock ideas that are maybe low liquidity now that might be higher in the future? Uh, I'm actually not. I'm actually not going to come up with stock ideas, but I'm happy to share them with you later. There's certainly there's there's a lot of uh, companies trading for low single digit earnings multiples that are growing at you know mid digit growth rates with high margins. Uh, I know Brent Todd was talking about companies trading for less than book value. There's, there's a ton of opportunities out there. It's a question of figuring out which ones are uh, most most appealing to you. Do you have any favorite or sectors right now? I'm I'm sector agnostic, except um, I mean I'm I'm a third generation venture capitalist, so my family uh, was very active in the resource business. My preference is for companies with cash flow. So I would say my favorite sector is cash flow. Um, <laughs> but, you know, other than that, it doesn't really matter to me. Perfect. Right. Now we can all go eat. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Um, I'd I apologize for everybody listening in on the webcast. Uh, we're uh, running a couple minutes behind, but we are getting after it as quickly as we can. And I'd like to introduce our 
next uh, uh, piece of content, I guess. We're content providers. Look at us. <laughs> at the uh, Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver. I'm your host. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm your host, Robert Kraft. We're actually doing a fireside Q&A with Hamid Shabazi, uh, CEO and Chairman of Well Health Technologies. And we actually... Uh, this was a cool thing that we came up with because one, obviously I wanted to have Hamed on here because I always enjoy our conversations, but we did a long form interview, I think like a year, two, two years ago, something like that, where we did it on our microcap graduation series, you know, talking about well health and how you've been able to take it from zero. I think it was like two to three years at that time, but now five years here um, to where it is today at uh, over 750 million annual, uh, 750 million annual in annual revenue, plus generating over a hundred million in annual EBITDA. So figure we do an update ask some more questions so um let me on the Pleasure webcast to be with you yes of course thank you for being for the webcast we're gonna go do our forward-looking statement slide and then our investor overview that you can see while listening in so to start off just as a quick introduction aside from everything that i just said there you know uh hamid has been a supporter of planet microcap and snm for a long time I've had the privilege of watching uh, many of Hamid's presentations uh, when he previously was the CEO of TR Networks, a company that uh, he successfully grew and sold to PayPal in 2016. 2018, Hamid founded WellHealth Technologies, and in only five years, like I said, it has grown from zero to over $750 million in annual revenue, plus generating over $100 million in annual EBITDA. And then for those who aren't familiar, Well is a publicly listed digital health company in Canada. Wells Solutions enable more than 28,000 healthcare providers between the U.S. and Canada and power the largest owned and operated healthcare system in Canada with more than 130 clinics supporting primary care, specialized care, and diagnostic services. In addition, the company has extensive operations in the U.S. targeting specialized markets. I proved that I can read very fast. Now to some questions. Hamed, thank you for being here. It's great to see you and be with you. Congrats on the event. Thank you very much. All right. So, Let's start this off with a quick update. You know, how are things going at WellHealth? They're they're going really well. I think, um, you know, at at the eighty thousand foot level, we tech enable healthcare providers, and the 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 opportunity that I saw, you know, five now close to six years ago when I started this company was healthcare providers really needed digitization and modernization. Their practices were, I mean, for some of them, you could you could be in their offices, you know. You know, six years ago, and and you would have had the same experience as to compare to 40 years ago or 30 years ago, and that was, you know, confusing given the digital transformation that we've all experienced overall. And 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 you know, the view was, look, no industry is going to evade digitization. So, so when are when are we going to see the true sort of tailwinds that are gonna that are gonna drive that? that that's why I started the company, and I felt as a tech guy, if you will, you know, as a tech generalist. That's that's being able to apply software workflow and digital optimization and, and disruption to you know fintech and other industries. You know that 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 uh, the healthcare marketplace was was a great place to be. And and you know fast forward, um, you know we went through a period of time, i.e. the pandemic with COVID, that healthcare providers actually needed software. Mm-hmm. And so you know we went through a period where you know because frankly when we started and we were pushing our ideas on digital transformation. Some people were interested and a lot of people weren't, you know, it was like, um, you know, change management was very challenging. I, I don't know how many doctors, you know, but it's hard to get their attention. Time is money. They don't, they don't have a return on equity business, business model. They have a return on time business model. So it's famously difficult to get their time. But then of course, you know, physical distancing became a thing, you know, 
you know, you know, forced telehealth became a thing. And so we went from 0.25% telehealth penetration in the country to a peak of 80% uh, in April of 2020, which is, you know, enormous. And so many clinics closed and very few clinics remained open and doctors, you know, being able to kind of come in and carry that hybrid business. And, and I'm very proud that well kept all its clinics open. And, and at that point in time, we really demonstrated that we can deliver for providers. What happened after that is um, there are a lot of providers that continue to be interested in digital transformation. And now I, I think, I think, you know, we, we just had this kind of multi-year acceleration. And today I can tell you that, you know, the one thing that we that we focus on day in and day out is is how to help tech enable these providers and how to get them to use digital tools that amplify them, make them more efficient, improve their 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 patient outcomes. And we do that in two ways. Actually, really one way, and that is our digital platform. But we apply the digital platform in two ways. One is a SaaS a la carte offering, which more than, you know, probably getting now close to about a third of all providers in the country are using. And then uh, the second way that, that, we can, that we can give you access to our uh, platform is if you no longer want to run a, your own clinic, you come and join one of ours. And then all of our tools kind of wrap around you. So, so we're getting more and more um, uh, confidence that that is working. You know, doctors are now seeking us out, particularly too because they've been forced to run businesses, and now that they realize they don't—they're not forced to run a business. They would rather join. We particularly see this with millennials; they don't want to run businesses. They want to work next to other, you know, uh, professionals, and and they want the flexibility. Of coming in and out of you know uh, uh, you know practice, and that's really working well in terms of us creating a fully managed hosted environment for them. Um, if we work had a good brand, I'd say the we work of healthcare, but uh, you know we'll have oh, to find uh, another. Strike one. that from the webcast. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, they seek you out. They want to talk to the tech yeah. guy, tech guy. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, my next question, and that that actually everything you just said leads to my next question, having to do with um, some of the keys to executing on the strategy and some of the success that you've seen at well health, you know, like, like we said, from zero, zero to where you are today in five years, what would you say are some of the keys to that success? I think discipline is a big one. You know, we, we, we often say it, well, the three most important things are discipline, discipline, and discipline. Cause you know, once you start to get a, a reputation as an acquirer, you get a lot of people approaching you with a lot of stuff. And it's easy to say, I like that. I like that. I want to do that deal because I can, but you have to really hold yourself back. You really have to, um, you know, you know, write down and and really commit yourself to a framework, commit your uh, your team to a framework of 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 what you're willing to do financially, but also understand that there are things that are intangible that impact that as well, like culture, um, like can we all get along? You know, um, can we can we can we have the right legal uh, levers, you know, in case things go awry. And, and so a lot has to kind of work together. And a lot of times you really want to do a deal, but you just can't. And, and you have to, and I, so I, I think that's been a big part of our success. Quick follow-up to yeah. that. I mean, what are some of your criteria? Cause clearly that's been growth through acquisition. Yeah. Right? So what's been some of your criteria when looking at a potential company to bring in into the fold? You know, I, I think we're, we're, first of all, we do a lot of due diligence. Um, and, and some people don't love that. You know, we get a lot of, 
Um, we get a lot of really? people coming to <laughs> we get a lot of people coming to us and say this is a short process. We already have a buyer, and they they try to create a lot of pressure for you to make a decision quickly, and you got to maintain your decision. Trying to so, game, basically trying exactly, to game. exactly. But I think the biggest thing for us is being financially disciplined and just. And just like, you know, there are going to be times when people are willing to pay more um, than you want to pay and, 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 and they will try to stretch you. And there, look, there's some very talented bankers out there that are going to, that are going to do everything they can to contort you and twist you. And, and so we, we, we very early on established a, a framework for, for clinics, which was sort of single digit EBITDA multiples. We didn't want to go, we wanted to sort of be in the four to six times range. That's actually fallen since the market came off. So, so even though the, 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 you know, our currency came off like everyone else's, what we were buying came off. So actually our, the R between where we're trading and what we were able to buy has even gotten better, you know? So, so we've been actually very encouraged by what's happened as of late in terms of the last couple of years, we've done smaller acquisitions. We found that the low end of the market, the bid just disappeared. Um, you know, any other companies in our sector that were publicly traded, a lot of them lost their currency. Um, you know, e- even private market players, you know, uh, were not able to consolidate clinics anymore. And then a lot of people found that consolidating clinics isn't easy. You buy them, now you got to integrate them, now you deal with all those doctors. We, we created a very um, focused, um, committed, passionate, and experienced team to make that all, uh, you know, make, make, make that all work. But as you know, we also consolidated a number of software companies. You know, we have a whole platform, 60 plus million dollars in revenue, well exceeding rule of for, uh, 40 kind of metrics, uh, which we think will be a hundred million dollar business on its own. Uh, and, and, you know, we were committed to buying those at single digit EBITDA multiples too, you know, with, 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 with non-speculative synergies. So, um, and most of them, we, d- we did do that. And that's not easy to do. <laughs> You know, kind of very much borrowing from, you know, channeling Mark Leonard, the constellations of the world, you sure. know, Steve Sadler, mentors, things of that nature. Very good. So my my next question dovetails along with this as well, because, I mean, I think everybody in this room and probably listening online all recognizes that, you know, we're in this tighter capital markets environment right now. You know, you just kind of addressed your criteria, but has that criteria changed at all? Because of where we are from a macro perspective, you know, where we are with capital markets. And then are you seeing any more or, or better opportunities now as a result of the market conditions? Yeah, it's changed. It's gotten tighter. You know, when, when money supply gets tighter, your execution has to get tighter. Everything has to get better. You have to do better deals. You have to integrate better. You have to, you know, every year we go through a very painful cost optimization plan. And people are like, hey, Hamid. In our all hands, you just talked about how great things are. Why are we doing cost optimization? It's like, because we have to, you know, we're, we're in an environment where we have to do the very best to deliver, you know, uh, the, the greatest amount of efficiency possible. You know, it, it, multiples contract. And so you, you, you have to, if you want to move your business, move the needle, you have to buy stuff that causes even a greater ARP and, and creates more accretion less dilution, you know, everything has to get better, you know, and, and it's, and it's challenging, but I think it does separate the wheat from the chaff. And it, it also puts a lot more emphasis on integration, you know, because, um, you know, and we have, we're pretty, pretty buttoned down on this. We have a day one plan, the first 10 days, first 30 days, 60, 90, first 100 days. And there's specific goals that are programmatic for us that, that absolutely have to happen. And if they don't happen, we really try to close the loop and try to find out what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my next question then for you today, you know, 
um, I, I think we wanted to also talk about access to capital, right? Because that's dovetails yep. everything that we were just referring to. You know, so first of all, how has well funded its organic growth and acquisition strategy in this capital constrained environment? And then part two is what words of wisdom can you provide some other small cap CEOs that might be in the room or listening in about accessing capital and funding their growth? Yeah. So look, I think this is an exceptional environment where things, the, the tap ran dry. So in this environment, as I mentioned, I think, I think you just got to, your, your deal making has to be exceptional to attract the capital and to show how you're creating value. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, um, this, this whole notion where I'm going to go raise, I'm going to create a, uh, you know, war chest to go out and do acquisitions. I don't think that works as well today. I think, I think the, the whole, you know, painstakingly putting deals together, just in time financing, demonstrating the accretion, the dilution, the strategic effects. Some people say, some people ask me, you know, are your deals strategically accretive or financially accretive? I say they have to be financially, they must be financially, strategically, and culturally accretive. You can't do deals that after you do them, you say, well, that was a great deal. And, and we got something out of it that we didn't have before in terms of territorial coverage, but boy, we hate those people. You know, <laughs> you know, they have to add something to the mix, right? And, and so I, I think, um, yeah, so, so we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing access to capital still there. I just think the bar has gone up. We funded a lot of our growth through organic cash flow and debt. You know, so, uh, and, and we've worked hard to pay down our debt. We were, um, I think in our last reported quarter, we were under two and a half times le- leverage ratio. And so, if we, and we've made pretty significant acquisitions lately. And, you know, we haven't been raising any money. Um, and, 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 and so I, I think we're appropriately levered right now. Um, you know, and, and I think that, to me, that's what debt is. It's a bridge to equity. Or if, if you build a very sustainable business, you know, you, you can continue to grow. I mean, I mean, it, Everyone hates dilution, right? But if you can really demonstrate that you are to be trusted with that dilution, I think that's the that's that's the brand that you have to be able to have as a, as a management team. And people still hate dilution, but but again, you know, um, if if you can create value with that, most investor presentations will not show you the slide. Ours does, by the way, will not show you the slide of what is revenue per share ish you know, per share and EBITDA per share and cash flow per share. They'll just show you the nice top line. They'll show you where this, the chart's going. Sometimes the chart's not even going in the right Man, direction. You're at a microcap conference, all right? <laughs> yeah, cool it, right? Stop showing off. <laughs> but that's, the, that's where, if you're really creating value, you should be growing your revenue per share and your earnings per share. And that's what we... That's the, that's what we're trying to hold ourselves uh, accountable to. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I think there's still a lot of capital out there waiting. Um, I, I do think it's a bit of a waiting game until the markets get going. I, I fully agree with Dave, um, who's obviously a phenomenal investor and we're very lucky to have him. Um, but, but, uh, you know, this is a great time for small caps and, and there will be a time when people care. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a matter of time. Sure. And for the webcast, he's referring to uh, Dave Barr, who did his uh, keynote presentation just before. Yeah. Okay. So uh, my next question then, because I really want to get to some Q&A from the audience. I'm sure everybody's got a ton of questions here. So my next question for you, artificial intelligence has become a big topic of discussion these days. What is WellHealth doing in AI more broadly? How do you see AI being used in healthcare longer term? Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's, you know, fundamentally um, transformational for any, any, almost every sector. I can't think of a sector 
that's not going to be profoundly changed by, by AI. And so as a company that tech enables its healthcare providers, it's obviously going to be a big part of our world. And, and it is. So it's, it's revolutionized our product, our internal delivery of product development. But also what we found as a, as a company that's growing, we have over 4,000 team members now, probably within a few months, probably by the close of the year, we'll be about 5,000 or closing in on 5,000. It's, it, as you get, as you get bigger, it's just, it's, it's just part of life. You, you're going to slow down a little bit in terms of your ability to innovate. So there's some exceptional companies that, 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 that can break through that. But even them, you know, even an Amazon that's, that still acts like a startup, you know, they, they, um, it, it's cha- their challenge to, to pump out new products very quickly. So this is why we started an AI investment program with our ventures arm, well, well ventures. So we're making minority investments in companies that we can then, we don't, we're not just a, a check. We are, we are giving them access to a huge pool of healthcare providers, healthcare clinics, and healthcare infra- IT infrastructure. And so reason, we announced our AI investment program and we've got well over a hundred um, interested parties in the first 10 days, which was, it was, it was pretty remarkable. And we've made some investments and we'll make more, but the, the main goal there is to activate product development capacity internally and externally. Those get those engines going, start integrating products and start delivering for providers. I mean, it, this all comes back to your mission and your vision and, and you have to be, you know, you know, you can't, you know, AI is really interesting. It's very cool, but is it really tangibly delivering for your, for your party? And, and, and for us, for example, we, we rolled out a AI voice scribe. So this is, this is pretty remarkable. If, if, if you know any healthcare providers and doctors, you know, when they, when they get into the room with you, a lot of times they're taking notes. They got their head buried in the, in the laptop or they're taking notes furiously because they have regulatory requirements to publish notes in a certain format. And it's, and that's how they get paid. And if someone wants to audit them, they look at their notes and sometimes they spend more time on the notes than they do in the consultation with you. <laughs> so we built um, a, a tool based on generative AI that with, you know, both parties consent listens to the conversation and is then able to generate a summarized patient note in the format that's required by, uh, you know, legally by, by the healthcare authorities. Our, our providers love it. I mean, that's just one, one, uh, uh, you know, product that we've deployed that's done very well. We think that that is, we think the whole practice of medicine will change to being mostly, um, you know, uh, voice activated by doctors in the future. You know, so, so, so all that's going to be driven through AI. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be quite interesting. I was going to say not to speak anecdotally and personally, my wife's a nurse. I mean, you know, part of the reason she, it takes her so long to come home is charting. So, uh, so I definitely, definitely appreciate that. So next question for you today, uh, before we get to the Q and a, um, well has clearly has an established brand in the Canadian investor community. Um, I think everyone in here knows well to one degree or another and also listening in. Um, but some of our audience may not be aware that well actually generates revenue in the U S yeah. too. So can you talk a little bit about your U S operations and what markets you serve in the U S? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So most of our revenue and like the majority of our revenue and our profitability comes from the U S uh, not to say Canada, we, we, we generate tens of millions of dollars of EBITDA in Canada, but, but in the U.S., the only big difference between the U.S. and Canada is that in the U.S., we don't sell the tech on an a la carte basis. As a provider, if you want to benefit from Wells 
tools and technology, you have to join one of our fully managed virtual or physical clinics. And, and instead of trying to create a connected ecosystem like here in Canada, where we want the gamut of primary and, and, and secondary care across the country, that's, that's our goal is to create a connected healthcare ecosystem that covers most of the bases. In the US, that's already been done many times over. So we then want to go into specific areas where we think we can add value. Um, so we're very strong in women's health. We're in all 50 states. We are probably the number one uh, women's health business, uh, telemedicine business that's focused on sexual and reproductive health. No one bigger than us as that pure play. That's one area. Another area for us is behavioral health. Our, our uh, circle of medical business, it's a primary care business. Uh, you know, hybrid telemedicine and physical clinic offering, uh, but it excels in behavioral health, uh, depression, anxiety, ADHD, stuff like that. Um, we are very big in, uh, you know, basically providing uh, anesthesiology services to routine colonoscopies. Um, so we have a, over a thousand providers that, that are just involved in that, in that, in that service. So we serve the GI space quite significantly. So we've, we've, we, we have, we have a mixture of primary and specialized care, just like here in Canada, but it, it's, it's, uh, it, we just don't sell the tech. You, you have to join us again. And, and, and that's been, and that's the other thing too. Like what, what people don't realize about healthcare is that it's a two-sided market. Patients demand and, uh, physicians supply and, in most of the world, the demand is incessant. It's unyielding. It's, it's, it's always, always, always there. In some countries like Canada, it is, it is even stronger because there's no friction to go to the doctor. Everyone wants to go to the doctor all the time. They get the sniffles. Let's go to the doctor. In Scandinavian countries, you have to pay a small copay. People don't know that. And actually, I think it's very efficient. I, I, I would do it here in Canada, but I know no one would want it. But in any event, um, you know, it, 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 you know, th- there's always this demand for healthcare services. So if you want to win, you have to secure the supply. So at the end of the day, healthcare becomes an exercise in accumulating a precious resource, which is healthcare providers. If you can secure the healthcare providers, you have a business, but that's not easy. And what we're trying to do is not just secure them, but value add them in a big way so that they never want to leave. You know, and I'll just I'll just say this. I, I love Amazon. I love great companies like like that 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 are a little bit controversial, that people love them or hate them, but everyone uses them. <laughs> you know, you talk to people say, ah, you know, I've got a, I've I've got my opinions about Jeff Bezos. You know, well, where do you do your e-commerce shopping? It's like, oh, Amazon, because it's fast, it's the best. You know, you know, and that's the thing. Like we 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 want there to be absolutely no question that if you want the best support. If you want the best operating platform, the most tech-enabled operating platform that that amplifies you as a doctor, that makes you more efficient, that you, that, that you and that you go to well, and that's something you got to work at every single day. I mean, Amazon has the best platform; they provide the best, you know, the the the, the lowest prices. They, you know, they're, they're they're incredible, and and that I think I think that's the vision that we have for the company: just just tirelessly delivering for our target audience. Your lips to God's ears, right? Uh, <laughs> so my final question then for you here today, um, from what you can tell us, what would you say are some of the company's uh, value catalysts or future catalysts that investors should look for from well in, let's say, for the rest of 2023 going into 2024? Well, I, I think we have a lot of unlocked value at well. Um, so so some of the analysts look at us on, as a sum of parts play. Some of them just give us a, 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 a multiple of EBITDA. But then you got 
you got huge growers like Circle Medical that's a hundred million dollar plus business, you know, you know, profitable, growing, um, and and you know doesn't but doesn't drive a lot of EBITDA. But we're basically getting very little, you know, value value on that because because of its contribution to EBITDA right now. If that was a standalone business, what would it get? Well, Circle Medical is probably of the size of 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 what um, uh, you know Sun Life just bought. Uh, uh, Dialog, right? So so roughly r- roughly the same size of business, right? So so that that was just taken out for what three hundred million dollars, right? So um, so so. so I, I think there's going to be opportunities for us to surface value, and that could be through, um, you know, potentially even spinouts. Like we, we just made this investment in in MCI One Health, um, where I'm not sure how much how many people saw that investment. If you, if you follow us, okay. So I don't know if you noticed this, but MCI One Health before us us making this investment, they were in two businesses. They owned healthcare clinics, and then they had a data business. Um, the data science business. It, actually is an AI-enabled business that scans data um, looking for rare diseases and chronic diseases, right? And they were trying to generate the data with their clinics, and they were trying to unlock the value of that data with their data science business. But they hadn't got to scale with each business, so they were kind of hamstrung. We bought the clinics and now invested in the remaining company, but we have an option also to acquire all of the founder's stock, 30-plus million shares. That's locked down. So we are now in a path to control of that business. So what that tells you at some point in time, that's going to be a well-controlled public company. And when you look at the capital efficiency with which we did that deal, and you look at what, what our plans are with a data science-focused business that's looking to unlock the power of data, you know that's an entirely new lever well, we generate enormous amounts of data. We have 22 plus million unique patient profiles in this country, and we have zero attributed to data in our in our business plan. So, so that gives you that's just one lever, right? And forget the fact that you know our organic growth has been consistently double digit and very strong. So, I I, I think look, we're I think at our last conference call we said we're a couple of years away from breaking through a billion in revenue. It's sooner. I'll just say that. I, you know, <laughs> I, I wish we had a little more time for some Q and A, but I, I, that's a good place to end it. I, I think <laughs> so. You know, with that, Hamid, where can our audience go and find more information on Well Health? Where, where can our audience go and find more information on Well Health? Oh, on um, Pardeep. Pardeep. There's the man. <laughs> what the website? The guy who looks like the proud father in the back. What? Wealth.company. <laughs> All right. And for full disclosure on the webcast, I am not a shareholder in the company, but we do appreciate yeah. Hamed yeah. taking the time here and to share his insights. Thank you. And uh, yeah. thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. I'd like to introduce our next keynote presentation here today. We're very thrilled to have Brent Todd from Canaccord Genuity giving a presentation titled Investing in Small and Microcap Companies for Superior Returns. I promise I memorized that. Brent, take it away, man. Being tall, I got to get this up here a bit. Um, yeah, I'm Brent Todd, uh, senior investment advisor with Canaccord Genuity. Um, suffice to say, I'm not sure that there's anyone in this room who's been investing in microcaps longer than myself. Um, I, well, you'd be right there, Paul, for sure. Um, so, 
I've been at this over 35 years. Uh, my client base comes to me and all we invest in is micro cap companies. We don't buy bonds. We don't buy mutual funds. We don't buy ETFs. We are micro cap specialists. So today, uh, presentation, I'm going to talk about micro caps and the case for investing now. Um, and then also some investment tips, not stock tips, but some things to look for when you're out here looking at these various companies that hopefully will help you all to make better investment decisions. So um, unlike some of my past presentations, this won't be a presentation of my greatest hits. So uh, which companies are to be considered? Generally, micro cap, we consider companies below 100 million in market cap. These are generally businesses that we're talking about, as you can see from this uh, presentation today. Some with assets, some not. A lot of them have revenues, some don't. Um, some businesses have positive cash flow and some don't. We're not gonna be talking about junior mining and oil and gas and exploration companies. Uh, that's a different topic and requires a different expertise. So uh, basically, this is the rallying cry. The time to invest is now in microcaps. Why now? Uh, we've been in a two-plus-year bear market. To my mind, we we sort of topped out. You can see at 1,100 on the venture exchange. That was March of 2021. So we're two and a half years into the current bear market. You can sort of see that we're just bumping along bottom for about the last eight to 10 months, uh, slightly below 600. So it means we're trading at, you know, arguably 52% of where we were, or we're off 47% from the highs. So probably a good time to start looking uh, at micro caps. Why invest now? Um, you know, I, I just want you to consider that a lot of companies that are listed on the exchange when times were good from 2013 to 2021, when we lived in a very low interest rate environment, that a great deal of companies were able to raise a great deal of cash. Now, not all of these companies have squandered their cash. So there's a lot of companies out there that are sitting on full treasuries that have profitable businesses and are worthy of your investment dollars. Also during COVID, a lot of businesses got funded or bailed out during that period. So even that wasn't as bad a period as most people would think. So do consider there's a ton of companies out there with large cash reserves. You know, we're buying some companies at discounts to the cash and the securities that they hold. Um, they have profitable businesses to boot. It's kind of a shooting fish in a barrel scenario. The other thing, uh, another case to be made right now is that the Canadian dollar is trading at eight-year lows. Um, most Canadian listed businesses do the majority of their business in North America, and a lot of them do the majority of their business in America. So with our dollar being low, our expenses are in Canadian dollars. We're selling to U.S. companies in U.S. dollars. There's a great delta there. So look for some of those companies. Also, 
in North America is the strongest economy in the world right now. Where would you rather look for businesses that are potentially to thrive, right? A further trend that I think is huge and not a lot of people are picking up on is that there's a great deal of re-onshoring going on in North America. COVID, China shutting down, you know, supply chain issues. People are bringing stuff back to North America. They're bringing plants back here. It's a great deal of business to be done. Um, and who's going to benefit? Probably North American companies. Lastly, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, that's been passed through the House and the Senate. So that's a done deal. There's going to be a trillion dollars spent on infrastructure, on bringing these plants back, on bringing semiconductor production back to North America. That money is going to flow for the next four to five years. There's many, many businesses that can take advantage of that. So it's a great time to be out there looking. Um, we'll go to the next slide, Sean. Many Canadian listed micro caps are more reasonably valued than large caps. It's true. The average PE right now on the S&P 500 and on NASDAQ is about 23.24. Some of the, you know, four horsemen of the NASDAQ, Tesla be trading 80 times earnings, Nvidia is trading more like 100 times earnings. We're finding companies that are trading as low as 5 or 6 times earnings. You might find some of those companies here in this present or in uh, this conference. In a recession, PE ratios can go as low as 12, 13. That would imply some, some downside for the S&P and NASDAQ. Um, doesn't really imply any downside for some of the companies that we're talking about. Some micro caps are trading at a significant discount to their book value. We, you know, we've got one company right now we buy it at 45 cents. If they close their doors tomorrow and sold everything, there'd be 90 cents in value there. You know, and this is a profitable business. I mean, it makes 10 million in EBITDA. You know, we're just buying shit out of it. It's just it's silly. So they're out there. Um, I won't belabor that. So right now, this is one of the three best buying opportunities that I've seen this century. I think one of my slides back there, I forgot to mention it, but the two best buying opportunities in my career was the tech wreck of 2000, 2003, and the great recession of 2008, 2009. While those periods were like hard as a broker because stocks were down, you had clients' portfolios that were down, the companies that we bought during those periods were the backbone for returns for our clients for years. And I don't just mean like two, three years. These are companies that we bought at 30 cents that ultimately went to five, seven dollars. And the only reason we could buy them at 30 cents was because the market was shitty. That's where we are right now. So this is the third best buying opportunity I've seen in my career. I've been at this a long time. It's time to pay attention. Also, the economy has certainly been more resilient than envisioned. So, you know, we've got to factor that in that some of these businesses are doing quite well. So lastly, the argument to be made 
is that the worst is over or nearly over. The interest rate cycle, rate rising cycle, is probably closer to the end than the beginning. In the last two years, I read a lot of management discussions and analysis, MD&As, all the time. And it's been littered with COVID, supply chain issues, inflation, labor shortages, the war in Ukraine, China shutting down. Now, these CEOs weren't lying. They were all huge issues for those businesses over the last two years, okay? Like we've had a confluence of events over the last two years. You know, confluence is a wonderful term where basically four or five things come together to make a worse thing than any one. Well, that's what's happened out there. But I can honestly say in discussions with businesses and CEOs, and we talk to them a lot, is that a lot of that stuff is abating. Okay? So keep that in mind. The market's been killed. Share prices have been killed. But the business environment has slowly gotten better. Combine that with interest rates hopefully being close to finished in terms of raising. I think there's a good environment to start putting some dollars to work. So that's the end of the rallying cry in terms of why now. Now, you know, I'll, I'll just go into some, some observations, some investment tips, if you will, that I've, you know, honed over the years uh, in terms of doing this for a number of years. And, and hopefully you guys can get something out of that, use it when you're looking at the businesses. So firstly, the cornerstone of my investment philosophy, pretty simple. The surest way for a company's share price to appreciate is to produce an ever-increasing stream of profits that shareholders may participate in. It's true. I've yet to see a company that raised revenues and ultimately raised profits where the share price didn't go. So when you're looking at these businesses, look at their bottom lines, ask yourself how they're going to rise, and if they're rising, should you get aboard? So we have a saying in microcapville that the average microcap success story is a 10-year-old overnight sensation. And I've experienced this many, many times in my career where the company bumps along trying to figure out what they are, what their product is, who they sell to. Um, it's confusing a lot of times takes patience, they wear out their investors' patience, and then sometimes, against all odds, they figure it out, and all of a sudden, that 30-cent stock that sat there for 10 years goes to two bucks inside of two years. So when you're looking at these businesses, ask yourself, where are they on that line of figuring it out? And are they turning a corner to sustain profitability. It can't just be one or two quarters. You know, no one rewards a micro cap for one or two quarters. They have to put together a year, 18 months, show that the, the things are going in the right direction, okay? Sometimes 
some businesses just by being in the game long enough sometimes it's just their time i've seen that where you know whatever it is they sell produce just becomes their time and that company gets on a roll and lastly look for a catalyst to their profitability you know we we just i think grid was just in here before um they've got new products coming out is that a catalyst to increase their profitability so look for those catalysts look at the businesses and most importantly ask yourself is this going to make them more profitable because that's what's going to make their shares go up so there's this saying you know if you build a better mouse trap the world will be a path to your door you know it is bullshit okay um more investors have lost more money investing in what they think is a better mouse trap the reality is a business, a stock, a company, it's all about selling the mousetrap. And not just selling the mousetrap, but selling it profitably. Some businesses, some things are too far ahead of the curve. I found in investing being too far ahead of the curve is just as dangerous as being too far behind. So these are a few things to notice. Don't get lured by a better mousetrap. Ask management how they intend to sell it and specifically and i think we've all seen this where where the inventor of the mousetrap is now the guy in charge of selling the mousetrap generally a disaster okay so the first slide here uh, is an analogy that i use to describe startups and micro cap businesses and basically, it's like rolling a big, heavy rock up a hill. Now, the bulk of the management teams that I come across aren't as muscular or athletic as this individual. So a lot of times, they've got to rest. Sometimes the ball goes backwards down the hill, and things take longer than anyone slash investors, friends, family would like. That's the average, you know, that's the success story that takes 10 years. So that ball is constantly being worked on, constantly being moved up the hill with the goal that maybe at some point the ball will get to the top of the hill and start rolling by itself. As an investor, I've been in a few companies where the ball got to the top of the hill, it's a wonderful thing, and the ball starts rolling by itself, and the company starts making more money than you anticipated. So here's a picture of the ball rolling down the hill. Now, the one thing I will say is when it gets to the top of the hill and it starts rolling down the hill, is that it can roll a lot longer and further than you ever think. Once the company's figured out who their customers are, what their value proposition is, and they start mining that vein, let your winners run because they can run a long way. By the way, this is anyone heard of Zorbing? Zorbing, Zorbing is like where you get a big ball and you get put into the ball and then they roll you down a hill. So another little tip, because I've done it, 
is don't absorb with your wife in the ball. <laughs> Big mistake. Okay, so basically the growth can be steep once companies figured out who their customer is. Um, don't be quick to sell that winner. Once the company's demonstrated growth and growing profitability, the ball can roll down the hill. So I guess we kind of covered that. Another, you know, subtle thing, but it's always, you know, the, the D word, dilution. Um, some of my best successes have come investing in companies that got it figured out inside of 40 million shares. Um, it's, it's a generalization. Trust me, I know there's going to be some company here with 200 million shares going to say, you know, we're on our way. Um, and they might be. But a company with 40 million and ideally 25 million shares, consider this, you know, for a 25 million share company to have to be profitable and figure out who their customer is and be selling and on their way. Uh, for it to be a $100 million company, that'll be a $4 share price. Uh, I've, I've had a few companies that got it all figured out inside of 25 million shares and voila, they went to five, $7 from like 30 cents. So, you know, be cognizant, dilution does affect upside. You know, um, so just another investing tip. So we got a uh, quote from Wayne Gretzky when describing his success. He said, you know, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. So I like to kind of think of that same when I look at businesses. You know, I want to talk to the CEO of the company and try and figure out where they're trying to go to. I can look at their financial statements and see where they've been, but I want to see where they're trying to go to. And once they share with me where they're trying to get to, I'll work backwards to see if that implies some upside on their share price. Okay. So like, oh, okay. If this company's successful, I could understand how they could be a $2 stock. Does everybody get that, right? And if the stock is trading at $3, that wouldn't be good. But if it's trading at 50 cents, then maybe that's worthy of considering your investment dollars. So try and figure out where they're going. Keep in mind, you're gonna get a quarterly report card to say if they're on their way towards that goal. So, you know, very often, sometimes we see companies that are 100 million market cap, and I'm like, they've got to execute like hell just to be worth what they're worth today. Chances are you want to avoid that investment. So, we've got another quote from Wayne Gretzky. So, you know, Great Britain has Churchill and the U.S. has Mark Twain and, you know, we, we have hockey players. But so you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So, you know, if you come across some companies, and I'm finding quite a few of them right now, 
where you can convince yourself that there is like zero downside to owning this company and yet there's at least 50% upside or there is upside, I think you have to make that investment. You know, um, like the company I talked about earlier that we're buying, it's, you know, management owns a lot of shares. They're not going to drive it into a ditch. The breakup value is 2X what I'm paying. You, you got to buy that stock. So don't be cute. Don't be trying to time the market. It's a mugs game. Right now is the time to look for these great values in these mispriced businesses. You find a mispriced business right now, buy it. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk um, one case study about a stock that I started buying a couple of years back or a year and a half back. Um, and just because it, it sort of brings in a lot of the themes that I was talking about. So here was the stock, the ADF group. Uh, they're out of Montreal. They, they basically design and engineer and then procure and manufacture steel for construction. So these are non-residential. This would be big plants, airports, convention centers. These are big projects, okay? So out of Montreal, they got about 600 uh, employees in their plant. So if you look back sort of like 2020, um, this company lost the nickel. And then 2021, they made like 21 cents. In 2022, they made 46 cents. Q1 of this year, they made 16 cents. So we've got that ever increasing amount of profitability. We got a company that uh, went from losing money to making money. Some of the catalysts that we talked about, right? And look at their share price. So we started buying around a buck fifty. We're still buying today at four fifty. Now, you know. Why are we still buying up here? Well, we've talked with management. We read their MDNA. We figured out what they're doing, what they're trying to do. So last year, this company borrowed $30 million and automated their plant. Okay. So what used to take 11 hours to do a beam is now taking one hour. This is not only cutting their manpower and their costs, but it's allowing them to go after a ton of business that before they couldn't go after. There was no margin in it. So now their, 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 their pipeline, their addressable market is much larger. So we still think there's lots of room to go for this company. And lastly, the first quarter of this year where they made 16 cents a share, which was like 5 million net income after tax, 10 million EBITDA in the quarter. Um, that company only used the automation for about 30% of the work they did. Ultimately, they believe they're going to get up towards 70, 75% of the work. So there's still lots of room for margin expansion here. Some of the other trends, re-onshoring that we talked about, 
in North America, infrastructure spending. So they're going to benefit. Plants are coming back, gigafactories. People want their supply chains closer. They're going to need plants. They're going to need steel to wreck these plants. This is their business. So, you know, we're sort of tying in all those themes. Oh, and they only have 32 million shares out. So at a buck, you know, this was a $32 million company. So um, hopefully that kind of, you can kind of see all of those kind of themes that I've been sort of harping on and talking about. But clearly here's a business that now has figured it out, has gone on a roll, that I believe will stay on a roll. Uh, careful, don't go out and buy this today, tomorrow, whatever. Their, their, their Q2 is coming out tomorrow morning. So I'm a bit of a high wire act here because we'll see how it goes. But, but I fully expect it to be a good quarter because there's more automation is going to start to affect the bottom line. So, so remember, this thing was a dollar like, what, two and a half years ago? Oh, by the way, why did they lose a nickel in 2020? COVID, 650 guys in a plant, you know, but they had a huge backlog. So 2021, it starts. These are the type of things you're looking for. So we'll com contrast that with NVIDIA, which has been like the phenomenal stock of NASDAQ, of anything out there gone from like two, 300 billion market cap to 1.2 trillion. Um, you know, it was the same thing. It was trading around 100. Now it's trading around 480. So similar type of return for both companies. I don't know. Personally, I'm going to stay with the company trading, you know, seven times this year's earnings versus the company trading 100 times. So, um, there's there's a micro cap idea. We're going to contrast it with with the you know the the best one of the best performing stocks on Nasdaq and out there. Period. So, in conclusion, uh, now is the time to invest. The current bear market has long has lasted longer than the two previous buying opportunities: the tech wreck, the Great Recession. Many Canadian listed micro caps are more reasonably valued than large caps, it's true. Many Canadian listing micro caps trading at significant, are sitting on significant cash reserves, and the worst is nearly over. So um, keep in mind all of the other things, the 10-year sensation, et cetera. Um, I think now is the time. I hope you guys have a successful conference and that you find a few of these companies and that maybe a few of these uh, tips that we handed out can help you in identifying some winners for yourself. Thank you for your time. And for full disclosure, Brent Todd is not an investor in NVIDIA and he is an investor in the ADF group. All right, everybody. Thank you all for attending the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver. I'm really excited to close out today's event with our final keynote presentation here. We got Ryan Irvin from Keystone Financial. And uh, Ryan, floor is yours, my friend. All right. Give me this. I'll put it on here. Oh, you guys are amazing. I will. I'll talk into it. Can you guys hear me? That's good. 
I tend to yell sometimes, so hopefully uh, we all hear me. It's good. We're good. We're good. So I was going to say welcome to Vancouver, but I think most of you are from Vancouver. But uh, m my opening line was, I uh, hope you've been enjoying our $20 beers and our $1,000 hotel rooms. But like you're all just probably driving from your house right now, I think. So I don't think that really applies. I was going to say, I have a 250 square foot condo right down the road. I could sell you for $1.5 million if you want to stay farther. But it's not that funny when you're not from here. So, or you are from here. But anyway, hopefully you know what we are, Keystone. We've been in business for 23 years. We're independent advisors helping our clients build 15 to 25 stock portfolios over that time. Independent means we don't receive any money for our research uh, from the companies. We just get paid by our individual subscribers who subscribe to our research and pay us to find them the best stocks all across the board. We look for small cap companies. That's where we started 23 years ago, but we build portfolios uh, including the Apples and the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. Now, if it sounds like I'm going to be talking fast today, that's because I've got about 45 minutes of material to jam into 30. So let's get it going. I've got broader market valuations I'm going to comment on in the start here. Uh, it's been difficult for us to find growth at a reasonable price broadly in larger cap names for the better part of several years now. We are starting to approach some levels where we see some pockets of uh, value. And in the small cap area, we think we're being, we're still being patient, but we think there is value there. Uh, we do believe that over the next 12 to 24 months, there will be some great discovery research that will help you, hopefully we can do that for you, help you position your portfolios to make outsized gains over the next decade. Uh, this is when the real money can be made in a well-put-together portfolio. Now, broadly speaking, when we look at current valuations, one metric that we like to look at, I've got it here for you, is the Schiller PE. It's a more reasonable uh, market valuation indicator than the regular PE because it eliminates fluctuations of the ratio caused by variations of profit margins during business cycles. We can see here, this is the Schiller over the last 20 years. Um, the ratio reached its highest point in November 2021 right there. That was 47% above the 20-year average, at uh, which the 20-year average is around 26.2. This was, again, this was the highest ratio other than, you know, this is over the last 100 years of the Schiller PE, the highest ratio other than in 1999 at roughly 44. That was in the dot-com madness at that time. So where are we today? That's what we're really looking at. Well, broader valuations today, where is the Schiller? 31.3. Now that PE is 18.7% higher than the last 20-year average. Again, that was 26.2. That's far better than uh, the Schiller PE, far better than the range it hit uh, when it was 38 in November of this, or sorry, 44 in November of 2021. But it's still 47% above the PE of the last 20 years. Now, the Schiller PE of note here, if we look back historically, it's noting that it is instructive to point out that it's 79% above the all-time average of 17.4, indicating we are not nearly historically cheap right now. It's better than the peak valuations that we saw, but risk remains in the market. And we really see a bifurcated market right now, and I'll get into that in a second. It's a tale of two markets, a tale in terms of valuations. Now, this here is a chart by Yardini Research. Uh, it actually looks like a plate of rainbow spaghetti to me right now, but um, it's supposed to be a simple chart there. Really, 
what it is showing is the disparity between large cap and mega cap stocks represented by, in the, by the PE here, the forward PE on them uh, in the red and purple lines respectively. And the small cap universe there is in the green line. And that is represented by the S&P 600 small cap index. I can shout out the numbers on these, the S&P 500 large cap, 18.9 forward looking PE, the mega cap eight, the largest companies, 28.1. And the S&P 600 small cap is 13.8. So I think you can see where I may be going with that. Of note, though, um, the S&P 500's gains are powered so much now by the mega cap A. You can see 26.9% is the uh, latest influence that they have on the S&P 500. Now, if we drill down a little bit farther into the large cap versus small cap story, uh, this is since 2005. The S&P 600 has historically traded at a premium. So small caps historically trading at premium valuations to their larger cap brethren, if we look at the S&P 500 cap here. Uh, but we can see today small caps traded a significant discount to their small cap or their large caps. Now, again, you can see this on the chart. It's dropped below. It's pronounced and likely a long-term opportunity in quality growth-oriented small caps. So. That is kind of our, that would be more of our quantitative analysis. Um, the Schiller PE and the valuation gap that we looked at there. Let's take a quick look at some of the qualitative analysis that we do as well. Um, when In the last quarter, our analyst team, there's four of us that looked at these companies. Uh, we went through 3,000 stocks on North American markets, looked at their latest numbers using our growth at a reasonable price model. and we read through their MDNAs and we went through their quarterly reports and select management teams. We interviewed about 50 management teams. So what did we find from that? Well, we also, as an aside, we went through those 3000 companies. Then we did another report called the electrification report. Started with about 400 North American uh, stocks ranging from loosely associated with the electrification segment. Uh, EVs, battery stocks, rare earth companies, electrical equipment, grid software, uh, everything, utilities all across the board. Now, we talked to a good deal of management teams, and I cherry-picked some of the stats, kind of qualitatively, our findings, and I'm going to share with them right now. Now, we found North American manufacturers, and this is speaking generally, have been benefiting from reshoring. They've had higher inventories for their end consumers, which is juiced revenues. We've seen uh, our customers pricing increases. Some, they benefited from that. Some input costs decreasing now uh, from the highs. Supply chain issues are easing, and there was some pent-up demand. But there are some risks here when we talk to the C-suite. They're saying uh, the essentially what we're seeing there is um, this can leave a gap. One of the main things that we see is inventory levels are normalizing, and it leaves a gap in quarterly numbers as end customers sell out of inventory for that quarter. Numbers were inflated in 2022 due to inventory builds as basically safety stock for their end customers. Now, we're being cautious here not to extrapolate the 2022 growth numbers as sustainable or a new normal going forward. There is a real potential for some significant step backs in the upcoming quarters over the next year. Uh, we have already seen this in some of the companies that we monitor uh, in the Q2 and Q3 numbers that have just been released. Uh, certainly a moderation in growth in many of the manufacturers that saw pent-up demand as inventories were building from their end customers. 
uh, into 2022. Now, other risks we see are continued inflation, wage and input costs. Wage costs are continuing to rise. Other uh, reserve potential for a reversal of the reshoring that we saw as customers seek prices overseas as the supply chain normalizes once again. Weaker end demand and recess recessionary fears. What else did we learn from the C-suite? Well, higher interest rates, and we know this, you probably all know this, but they're squeezing profitability. The C-suite, we saw many of these uh, CEOs were caught off guard with the significant net debt companies um, by the speed and the magnitude of the move in rates. Those with floating rates going from, say, uh, anywhere from 3 to 4% up to 7 to 9% has a meaningful impact on their cash flow. Now, Looking just at EBITDA, we're very cautious uh, right now. We want to look at real cash flow in the companies that we're analyzing. Uh, companies have really switched from playing uh, offense to playing defense now, and they're cost-cutting efforts, and we see growth suffering over the next year in a number of these companies. Now, we are cons they are also, we are also, but they are concerned by the consumer. Resilience uh, coming out of the recession that we saw, but um, not so resilient at this point, particularly in Canada, where you see mortgage rates, uh, not, not, they don't re, they reset faster than you see in the U.S. Well, um, the companies that, or that we spoke to worry that the, uh, consumer is being squeezed and disposable income is coming down. Now, what do we like though? What did we see? And which companies did we see were very confident? Many of the management teams, well, those were net cash businesses. They're feeling good right now. Companies with significant cash are kind of sitting pretty right now, earning better interest on that cash, but that's not really what we're looking at them for. More importantly, with capital in the equity markets um, drying up, access to capital, the cost of capital being significantly higher. M&A activity is turning from a seller's market to a buyer's market. We favor companies with strong balance sheets and cash and M&A opportunities over the next one to three years. We think that's going to open up for some smart companies that have held on to their cash and built up that cash and can use it to buy some businesses that uh, come on sale. So what would we like to do or what would we avoid today? Well, to start off, I'll talk about that in a sec. We help clients build simple equity portfolios. So we buy the Microsofts and the Alphabets of the world as well. But um, these are companies, great balance sheets, uh, great businesses, both those companies set to continue and have been benefiting from AI. Now, we also like companies like Fortinet, a leader in cybersecurity, great balance sheet as well. We continue to own core Canadian growth stocks uh, like Brookfield Infrastructure and Exchange Income. But today we're here to focus on the small cap area of the portfolio. So when we're looking at them, what are we avoiding? We're avoiding debt heavy businesses, particularly cyclicals. Um, this is where you can really get into trouble. Highly leveraged companies, interest payments are higher, eating into profitability. So Restaurants, hotel chains, airlines, furniture, high-end clothing, retailers, and automotive manufacturers. Now, cash-rich, strong, cash-flowing, producing businesses with debt, we're not eschewing those. There's some great businesses out there that have debt on their balance sheets that we can still buy today. But it's the companies that don't have the strong cash flow that we're avoiding. Now, we favor, and we, you know, I alluded to this, cash-rich businesses. These are stocks with net cash, positions on their balance sheet, producing cash, Yes, we want them to be able to weather a downturn, but we also want them to play offense and be able to capitalize on it. 
A couple of the companies in our co coverage universe have already done that over the course of the start of this year. We expect that to continue over the next year. I'll give you a couple examples. Dynacor is a company, roughly 40% of its market cap in cash, zero debt. I'll talk about it more in a second. I'll talk about another company today that has 50% of its cash, uh, market cap in cash and zero debt. Another company I'll highlight is Hammond Power Solutions. Huge cash flow position gone from a net debt to net cash and ready to expand organically. Now, why I highlight this company? Well, it's done tremendously well. It makes us look smart. But uh, mainly I highlight it because it's a good, good example of a unique company that basically no one else in Canada covered, but we've owned back since the start of this uh, decade, in the 2000s, when this company was essentially two businesses, Hammond Manufacturing and Hammond Power, and it split apart. We chose Hammond Power, and uh, it was at 60 cents today, and I'll, I'll show you the stock. is at, It was 60 cents today, not today. That uh, was about uh, 18 years ago. But um, today it's 56.21. Now, Hammond Manufacturing, incidentally, has entered our coverage recently. We think it's a good company, but I'm here to talk about Hammond Power today. They're a leader in the design manufacture of custom electric engineered magnetics, standard electric tripe, dye tripe, and cast resin liquid formed transformers. And when I say transformers, I'm not talking about Autobots and Decepticons, sorry. That would be really cool if I was. But what I'm talking about is transformers that are used to step up and step down power, step up to travel over a long distance, step down to be used in your home or applications such as a charging station. Now, as a matter of fact, Hammond's transformers are used at every Tesla charging station in Canada. And I've checked. Everyone I go by, I look and find the transformer, and you find the Hammond name on there, and they're there. It's great to see. Uh, when we recommended this, again, re-recommended it seven years ago, or several years ago, sorry. It was in the $7 to $8 range, you can see here. Um, now, at that time, they traded about seven to eight times earnings. We wanted a backdoor way of playing the uh, electrification boom that we saw going forward. Many of the obvious EV plays, the EV car manufacturers or the charging station manufacturers, trading at ridiculous valuations if they had any underlying cash flow. Well, Hammond Power had decent core business and cash flow, but as the world electrifies, the increased need for these type of products was seen and the stock has moved significantly higher. Now, still after the gains that we saw over the past several years, it still trades at 11 to 11 and a half times earnings right now. It's benefiting from uh, growth in its traditional customer market, which would be energy, mining, silica, manufacturing, and data center markets. But there's new opportunities for this company, evolving technologies like EV charging, we talked about Tesla, solar energy, and energy storage applications. The backlog is still at a near-term high. Now, we've taken half of our original position out of this stock. Uh, again, buying at $0.60, cents, buying at $7. We need to take some profits. but we, the company has around 600 million in annual revenues right now. We would forecast by 2030, they're going to be in the range of a billion in revenue. So it's not going to get there in a straight line, but we continue to own an outsized position right now. We expect it to be more volatile, but we own an outsized position. Now, I'm going to get to a simple concept. Now, this is something I talk about at events that I give, you know, all across Canada. Uh, I love to hammer on this, this point. Um, Warren Buffett, I'm going to say, recently said in the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting that the majority of gains in his 58-year career were made on just 12 stocks. Now, that's one great stock. 
great capital compounder every roughly five years in his career. And that would be like the likes of Coca-Cola for Warren Buffett. Now, you likely know this, but again, I like to hit myself and everybody in the audience over the head with this point. I think it's therapeutic getting hit over the head. I'm not sure about that, but uh, it's a simple concept. But And before I get to the four stocks I want to recommend today, I'm going to talk about this. Just two or three great stocks in your portfolio, in your lifetime can change your portfolio. Now, it is a simple concept, and it sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. But sadly, you won't hear that from most financial advisors, most financial pundits. Uh, the traditional construction of portfolios that many investors use inhibits you from benefiting from truly great stocks. And I'm going to show you how you can make some simple changes to the way you build your portfolio so you can capitalize on great stocks. Now, I put up this chart mainly because the numbers look great for us. And I usually have my associate Aaron with me and he really needs that. I don't need it as much, but he really needs that. Hopefully you can see that. It looks totally different on here, but anyways, it looks good. So now my point here is this is over a 20 year period. I picked out five great stocks. It's similar to what we've seen in Warren Buffett's research or in, in his career as well. Um, and I'll back, go back to talking about when he said 12 stocks over 60 years. This is how he powered his outsized gains. Now, if you added one or two or three of these portfolio or stocks to your portfolio over the last 20 years, you'd have a tremendous wealth effect in that portfolio. Now, we had a number of clients talk to us about investing in a couple of these companies. These are the, you know, straight numbers, $20,000 invested, uh, about 14 years ago in Boyd, 2.4 million today, 50,000 invested in Expel. A client just talked to me about this. Now, this is when, uh, five, six years ago, Expel was trading in the dollar 20, dollar 40 range, uh, had a million dollar portfolio. So take 20 stocks, divide that by the million dollar portfolio, 50,000 in each. Now, the entire portfolio five, six years ago was a million dollars. One stock in that portfolio now is worth $1.6 million. It just shows you how much a great stock can propel the gains in a portfolio. Now, it allows you to make a lot of mistakes because in the small cap arena, you will make a lot of mistakes, but you have to have these winners in your portfolio. Now, the question could, should come to mind, a couple of them. How do I find the next Expel? Boyd, Howman Power, or Water Furnace in my portfolio? What do these great businesses have in common? Number two, how do you construct a portfolio to capitalize on Expel, the Boyds, the Howman Powers, and Water Furnaces of the world? Well, as far as the profile of a stock goes, you should be looking for to really keep it simple. Great cash flowing businesses, good management with skin in the game. Uh, they trade at reasonable valuations and have long-term growth paths ahead of you. We literally give two-hour seminars on how to find these companies. I don't have time for that today. But what I can do for you is I, I can tell you the next part, the answer to the next part of the question, because it's a little simpler. Uh, how do you construct that portfolio to benefit from these companies? What you can't do is construct your portfolio in the way a traditional advisor typically does that. Uh, buying 50 to 100 stocks in your portfolio, uh, it's just not going to work that way. I have five to 10 minutes, so I think I'm going to speed it up and get to those companies. The bottom line is, we. this is Warren Buffett. He says, don't diversify, concentrate your portfolio, invest with conviction. That's what uh, Bill Gross says here. And how many stocks should you own? Well, about 20 stocks. We say 15 to 25, depending on the size of your portfolio, but that's where we believe the sweet spot is in your portfolio. 
Anything greater than that is diversification. That's as funny as it gets in finance. Laugh it up for us right now. Thank you. Okay, 15 to 25 stocks. Let's get to some of those stocks. Dynacor. Now, this is a company that we've recommended for a number of years now. Like I said, about 33% of its market cap is in cash. But what is this company? They're a miller, not a miner. They purchase ore from government-registered producers in Peru right now and processes at their wholly owned facility in Peru. Now, how do they make their money? It's a really simple business. It's a margin between the price of ore processed and the market price for gold. The higher the margin, the better. Throughput also helps them. The more ore they're crushing and putting through their mill, the better. A higher gold pricing environment helps them. We're seeing that right now. It encourages more small-scale miners to put through uh, and bring them the ore to be crushed. Now, here we go. These are our recommendations. Currently trades around $3.15. We recommended it between $1.40 and $2. Still recommend it today. Fair value is about $4.20. Pays a good yield. I'll talk about that. High geopolitical risk in the business. Why do we like it? 11 consecutive years of profitability. That's unheard of in the gold segment. Very strong balance sheet, 33% net cash self-funded. This is the cash position or since 2019. It's gone from around 22 cents per share to about $1.05 per share right now. Dividend growth stock, we love that. Um, we consulted with the company, had them actually institute a dividend. Uh, we love getting paid to hold companies that we own. You can see it, was, it started around annual basis around $0.02. Cents. Today, it's around $0.12. Cents, and we expect it to be upped again at the end of this year. Payout ratio is about 25%, so has a lot of cash to keep funding. Reasonable valuations, growth and diversification plan in place. This is the midterm growth. You can see back from 2018 to 2019, all of those figures going up and in the direction we like. There was a pause in terms of growth over the past year. But now, again, this year growth has started 20% in revenues, 27% EBITDA, 71% uh, earnings per share. And that's real earnings per share, not an adjusted figure. We like to see that. Uh, investment thesis here would be strong dividend. Balance sheet for growth. Now, this company, over the next three to five years, they have one mill in Peru. We'd expect them to open up another one in Peru uh, in the north. They're in the south right now. Other Latin American countries they're looking at and West Africa. This is the stated goal of the company. Their existing plant just increased 16%. Uh, it can increase up to 600 tons per day. Trades at low valuation, 6.8 times our expected EPS this year, 4.4 times cash out. And just... Eight times earnings, adding back the cash gets you at four to four twenty-five target, target fair value essentially. Strong gold pricing environment. Let's look at the next company here, Polaris Renewables. Uh, we like this company. Have owned it for about a year now, uh, since it traded roughly in the thirteen dollars, thirteen eighty range. Bought lower when it sunk down to eleven. Uh, it's fourteen seventy-five today. Great dividend. Good last quarter, tremendous growth there, 37% revenue, adjusted EBITDA and earnings per, or EBITDA per share up significantly. Guidance, 57 to 61 million this year, up 31%. Cash flow was up 19% on a per share basis. Uh, a lot of that growth is coming from their binary unit that they installed in Nicaragua. Now, the story here is to diversify away from Nicaragua, and that's what we're seeing the company do. As you can see, the near-term growth path for this company uh, up to 2024, this is all funded uh, and will add 12 to 20, 18 million in EBITDA, which is great. But this, this gives you some 
uh, it quantifies you how they can get from where they are today. We expect around 60 million in EBITDA this year, which is significant growth over last year to the 100 million in EBITDA by 2027 or 2028. Um, again, this past year, 43 million, you add 17 million from the new binary unit and the new uh, acquisitions they made, you get 60 million. Then you're going to add some new production to get you to 20 million in EBITDA. Following that, all they got to do is acquire 20 million and you've got to about 100 million in EBITDA, which would call for significantly higher valuations from the business. There's our thesis, good growth, long-term growth path ahead of it that is reasonable and fundable. Uh, net debt right now, based on next year's EBITDA 20 or 2.3, so relatively reasonable. Uh, attractive valuations there, as you can see, and uh, fair value is 21, trades around the $14 range right now, pays a 5.7% dividend, 5.45% dividend. It's 5.7 a couple of days ago. InMode is a company we like, got to be very quick on this one. Uh, there's an aging population. We like demographic plays that trend into that. This company, minimally invasive and non-invasive aesthetic and medical treatment solutions in the U.S. Just picked up coverage on this uh, earlier in the year, $35. Trades around $38, $39 today. Uh, no yield. Uh, we think it's significantly undervalued right now. Why? We love track record of long-term revenue growth. We see it here. Uh, projected growth this year. Uh, EPS growth as well. We like both of those things, marrying them. Now, our investment thesis, they're a global leader in aesthetics, strong track record, high margins and profitability, seven years as a public company. You saw their growth in underlying earnings and revenues every year. 20% growth in revenues, 22% growth in non-GAAP earnings in the last quarter just reported, and the guidance was up for the year. Cash per share trades at around, like I said, $39. Cash per share is $7.57, $7.57, no debt. PE is 13.5, lowest in its peer group. They are a foreign issuer status, so it adds a level of risk. This is the last company I'm going to look at. I'm going to go really quickly. Specialty Pharma Company in licensing products in Canada. They own the rights to a product called ePurist, which is an uh, Accutane substitute that is in the severe acne realm. Um, the What's better about their product is essentially with Accutane, you got to eat a meal before you uh, take the drug. Uh, with their product, ePurist, you can eat it on an empty stomach. So, but that's not the only reason. That's the core cash flow that we like. We just recommended this a month ago around the 375 range. Traded at 419 yesterday. They just announced a substantial course issue a bit, I think, uh, on Friday. So uh, the stock is about 435 today, significantly undervalued. Our investment thesis, 36 million in cash. That's half the market cap in cash. Uh, has core products that have good cash flow, shielded by some tax losses as well. Near-term growth, though, it's about flat from the core business. What we see is them deploying $70 million over the next two to three years to add inorganically to their growth. They think they can buy this cash flow, these cash-producing pharma assets, at around five to six times. We'd say it's probably six and a half that they're going to have to pay. Uh, the long-term organic growth comes from one product I'll highlight, and right before you eat, you really want to hear this. It's about nail fungus. It's absolutely gross. We see that uh, on Canada, there's commercials all, all over TV. It's about an $85 million market. Uh, there's one product in the market. That's why you see the ads. You can't advertise the name of the drug, but that's why you see the ads. 
because there's one product dominating the market. Now, if you can believe it, if you get nail fungus, which I'm sure nobody in this room has, of course, but if you get it, the treatment takes a year and you have to paint it on your toe, for example, every day. Well, their product that they're in licensing that now has been licensed into uh, Europe, you paint it on once a week. So that's 52 times a year as opposed to 30, 365 times a year. I think that's how many days in a year, right? So we think three years from now, now you'll have good growth from the existing or flat growth from the existing business over the next two to three years supplemented by inorganic growth by M&A. And then three years out, you could get a boost by inner or organic growth. If they didn't have this organic kicker three years out, that tells me I'm on time. Okay. So if they didn't have that, we wouldn't be interested, but we do like the growth that they have organically three years going forward. There's another plaque psoriasis product that's promising as well. Current valuations, quite cheap. EV to EBITDA is three times. Price to FFO is 4.8 times. Um, we don't have a fair value on it right now. We are waiting till they make an acquisition so we can run those numbers. We think they're undervalued in this range right now. Uh, they have, like I said, just a substantial course issuer bid was announced on Friday, buying about $6 million with the shares, not lower than $395, not higher than $475. So there are some disclosures. Hopefully that helps. And thank you. And everybody, go have a drink. Get out of here. Thank you very much. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.